Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, I think iHeartRadio now carries this podcast and uh, an assortment of other platforms. And uh, we are going to have another episode of Podcasting Greatness. And this week I am answering questions that I've been asked for a long time. I've had a number of emails, a number of people asking me about the subject of martial arts cults. And this is something I've, I've sort of talked about a little bit or dropped hints about when I say, look, there are these groups out there that can develop high control authoritarian structures that can um, start abusing their members and stuff and have nothing to do or very little to do, let's say, with religion. You can have groups in politics. You could have groups in sports. You could have a Boy Scout troop become a little kind of destructive cult if they had an off-the-rails or narcissistic, you know, Boy Scout leader. And in this case, with martial arts dojos, according to what I have heard, this is a world that I am not really super familiar with. I've only had a fringe look into it personally. I've only read a few articles about this kind of thing. But Joe Rogan, who is all about, you know, MMA and that world, has talked about this more than a couple times about fake senseis or fake dojos where somebody's, you know, kind of parading around like a bit of a peacock and doesn't really have a whole lot of skill, but sells his students on the fact that he does. And then they end up paying over a whole lot of money, you know, learn whatever this guy's got to teach them and then find out they don't really know a whole lot of anything when a real fight happens. And, uh, or, you know, a thousand other variations on that theme. Uh, because I'm sure you can imagine how this could all work. Well, this week, we have a guest who we're going to talk to about this who's actually lived this. And not only did he live it, but he actually even wrote a book about it. His name is Lewis Martin. He wrote a book called The True Believers, and it is about his experience in a martial arts uh, dojo. And so, Lewis, or Louie, welcome to my show. Hi, thank you uh, so much for having me, Chris. Um, I've been listening to your podcast, especially a lot recently as I kind of like catch up and get up to date. And, um, you know, I think I, it's kind of a cliche to say you're doing the Lord's work. Uh, <laughs> and that's sort of weird because you're an atheist, right? Yes. Um, but, you know, I think I think that you're a voice that needs to be out there. And I'm, I'm really grateful that you are and given a platform to um, other people and also speaking about your own experiences in, in cultism. Awesome, man. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot. I, I'm look, I've been looking forward to doing this show. We we had to. Uh, I, I got a little uh, tooth problem last weekend, and we were going to do this last weekend. We're doing it this weekend, and I'm. I was uh, really bummed about that because I've been looking forward to this. So let's get to it. I wanted to first kind of set the stage a little bit for the audience on this, other than what I just said, by quoting you from your book, and this is actually from your introduction, and you wrote. Uh, well, it was interesting. There's a book out there. For those of you who don't know, I've mentioned this book maybe a couple times years ago. I haven't really talked about it much at all. And it's a great book. It's a, there was an author named Eric Hoffer, and this was written in the 1950s. He wrote a book called The True Believer. And it was one of the first breakdowns. It even predates, if I remember right, I think it even predates um, Lifton. Uh, and the uh, the uh, psychology of totalism, the thought reform in the psychology of totalism, which is kind of the seminal book on cults. But this one, 
uh, also goes into it. And it was very, very heavy into communism. It was uh, written during the communist scare. Eisenhower actually mentioned the book in one of his addresses to the nation, which is why I think it gained so much popularity. And rightfully so. It's a well-done analysis of communism, extreme belief, and what he calls the true believer. And and I want to quote you here because you read this book and you align a lot of your book to it. And you said, um, quote, I define a true believer as someone who has surrendered their personal identity for their group identity. Their goals are totally aligned with the group's goals. Any other roles they have in life are ultimately distractions. Their career is a distraction. Their family is a distraction. Their friends outside the group are distractions. Every criticism of the group is a criticism of them. Every enemy of the group is an enemy of theirs. But then you wrote something that I thought was even more insightful. And you said, quote, The make-believe world on the mat becomes preferable to the real world. It's no coincidence that most true believers have less stake in the real world than the average person. To them, they gain more than they lose in the changing room. And you were making a uh, point about the changing room, and you go into the dojo, you change your clothes, you leave your outside world outside, and you enter the world of the dojo. And you are talking here about that, and you say they're moving from a world they don't want to a world they do, a world where people bow to you, call you sensei, and defer to you. It's easy to see why true believers tend to get so good at martial arts. They can't wait to get from the changing room to the mat. They can be everything they're not on the outside. I, I loved that. I thought that was very insightful as in terms of looking into the view and psychology of somebody you know, in this martial arts world. And I wanted to ask you about this first off before we get into the narrative of your story. Is this, you know, you wrote this, is this, is this common with people you in, encountered in your world as, as a martial artist? A hundred percent. And it's, it's common even in martial arts schools that are, you know, do not have kind of destructive cult tendencies. And, and in that sense, you know, it's completely reasonable. Like, um, just think about it in terms of athletes, you know, whether it's martial arts or whether it's basketball, you know, a, a, a young man or woman that, um, you know, they don't have a good home life, they don't live in a good neighborhood, and they really embrace sports. And, and because uh, the rest of their life doesn't really offer them something of value, they just throw themselves into a sport and they become very good at and, and maybe a professional. Um, but of course, you know, that sport is um, providing them a, a way to kind of elevate their lives and it's sort of an escape path from their current uh, conditions, whereas, um, in the martial art that I was experienced with, it, it wasn't, you were sort of, um, you know, becoming in service to the martial art to sort of forward its goals and, and what it wanted to do rather than, um, you know, helping you go forth into the world and, you know, become a better person or, or, you know, take up a career or something like that. And I think with Hoffer, what was great about Hoffer and the true believer in the fifties was one, uh, you know, the word cult, I don't even think was in like the, the modern lexicon at that point. So I'm not even sure if he mentions the word cult in his book. He, he phrases everything as mass movements. He talks about mass movements. That's right. That's exactly right. That's right. And um, but a point that he made, and that's why it's so great, because 
there's no political agenda that we can relate to in Hoffer because it's, you know, it's, it's 60, 70 years old at this point. Um, so you kind of have to read it and sort of form your own thoughts and opinions. But he, one thing that rang really true was he talked it about um, with the threat of communism or uh, like extreme forms of socialism. You know, he was talking about Anything that wasn't de- democracy, I think. <laughs> right. It was, pre- it was pretty pro-democracy. Yeah. yeah. But he talked about this idea of disaffected young men and that in certain parts of the world, um, the development had not kept pace with the Western world or with industrial uh, world. And that he warns, uh, and this is where I feel like he was talking directly to the president and to people in power. He said, hey, you get enough disaffected young men that can't find work and that can't provide for their families. And they're going to, they're going to do something radical and they're going to embrace a radical ideology. Even if the ideology, you know, doesn't really have a lot, as long as it can promise them something better than they have, um, you're going to have a big problem. And, you know, in martial arts, um, it is primarily a male uh, environment, although um, there's certainly females in it and that's getting much better. But, in uh, the martial art that I was a part of, Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu, there was a lot of young men that, um, it's just like I said in the book, you know, their early 20s, maybe they skipped college, taken a couple classes at a junior college. Uh, I joined uh, in 2006, so the recession was about to hit, and then the recession did hit. People's sort of prospects in the outside world started to look a little bleaker, and suddenly that minor reprieve that you're supposed to get from going to your gym or your martial arts school, uh, it becomes more than that. And it becomes sort of a major retreat where you don't want to leave the mat because in the mats, um, it's a, it's a simplified world where you can live out a fantasy. And that was, you know, all, all cults have something to offer people that, you know, otherwise people don't join cults. And I've heard you say this before, right? Um, just like the, the frog, you know, you put them in the pot, you know, you can't throw him in boiling water, but you turn the heat up and uh, he won't know the difference over time. So what we offered a value was fantasy. That was really what we traded in. And every kind of martial arts fantasy that you experienced uh, through film and television, um, we sort of had an avenue for you to have that outlet. Um, But, you know, it, it came at a high price, of course. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's, um, we'll get into the specifics of that in just a moment. I wanted to first ask, you have since the time of this, you were involved with this particular group we'll be talking about for about seven years. And you've since gone on and, and joined up with other groups, maybe more healthy. Um, what, uh, is that true? Have you, have you been continuing to practice in other disciplines since you left that group? Yeah, as a martial absolutely. Artist? Uh, that's something I'm personally really proud of because after Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu sort of fell apart, uh, a lot of its sort of core true believers did not continue studying martial arts. And that is sad because some of them were incredible martial artists. They were physically really gifted. They they had this this really strong work ethic, sometimes stronger than, than I had. And uh, I thought they were really talented. So it was a shame, you know, over the years to kind of meet up with them um, you know, a year after I left, a couple years after I left, and just see that some of them were a little lost. And 
you know, they were a king in the world of the Met and they had the black belt and people gave them a title and stuff. And now, you know, they're busting tables or uh, trying to trying to go back to college a little bit later. And that's not all of them, certainly, but it's, you know, they weren't well equipped by Cebu Khan to kind of re-enter the real world. And, and I continued to train and that was difficult for me at first because uh, Cebu Khan was one, I was a like a seventh degree black belt in Cebu Khan Jiu Jitsu. So it's very hard to go to that and back into a world where you have no currency in another stu- uh, martial arts dojo. They don't recognize your black belt. You don't have the skill that, that you thought you did to accompany that. Um, but I've kind of clawed my way back up where, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly experienced submission grappler, all around submission grappler at this point, uh, uh, mainly in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And I still train regularly. I compete, you know, I competed at the U.S. Open uh, uh, last month. And, um, you know, I'm proud and I'm happy with, with where I am in my training. Excellent. And that's good because martial arts in and of itself is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with it as a subject. It doesn't have a value to it unless you assign it one. And, um, you know, it can be good, in other words, or it can be bad. It really depends a lot on, in, in the case of a dojo, it depends entirely on the sensei or the teacher. Um, because, you you know, even if the guy's a fake, he doesn't have to. That That's the kind of thing that tends to drive authoritarianism is they're kind of a fake and they know it. But they're just sort of shining people on anyway and get people to believe them. Um, this is where a lot of narcissists live. Yeah, they're not They're not all particularly skilled people. You know, they just have a lot of bluster. A lot of arrogance, a lot of conceit, and they can talk a good talk. Right, that's um, such a big part of it. You know, some of the the really really skilled people that I've met over the years, they lack kind of a natural charisma, or they lack even a, a you know a, an ability to kind of articulate complex ideas. So they they won't necessarily become the great teachers, but in a way they should be. You know, and and there's a lot of stories about meeting world champions and trying to get them to teach you something, and it's it's very difficult because you you suddenly realize like oh they're they're so good but they're not a teacher, and then there's other teachers that are outstanding teachers but they're not necessarily really good, and that's fine. I'm probably one of them, frankly. Like I'm not <laughs> I'm not a world beater. Like I think I'm I, I really enjoy teaching, but at the same time, like I'm not trying to present myself as something I not I'm not. That's when you run into some trouble. Exactly. And that and that alone, you know, the, the skill of teaching people a skill and especially a physical skill, uh, not an academic, you know, or mathematical or, you know, physics or something like that, but like physical, like it's it's it, it's immediately demonstrable whether you learned it or not. <laughs> you know? And but and yet there's a lot of technique and a lot of um, a methodology to teaching. And how do you do it? How do you do it in a healthy manner? How do you do it in an unhealthy manner? And when you're teaching people to beat up on each other, it's a little bit funny to use words like teaching in a healthy manner because you're teaching people how to beat up on each other, you know. But that's not all there is to it, of course. And 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 there's there's various depths and levels to it. So, okay, so seven years. Um, you've mentioned the name of the school. Why don't we get into this? How... You know, I wanted to set the stage a little bit there because the most one of the most common questions that is asked about about cults and it to me as a as a as a person who talks about this stuff is how do people fall for this stuff, right? How could they? How could you ever, right? Like it's always so obvious. 
that you're walking into a cult situation when it's never obvious and nobody's ever forewarned and they and and most people are extremely trusting especially when they're going into a situation where they are the student or the the one the ignorant one and they're going into a situation where they're trusting that somebody as an authority figure is going to give them the goods you know how did you get involved in this group in the first place uh i'll tell you um first off about the issue of how do people join cults something i've thought about this is that cults have sort of a life cycle most cults can't really sustain themselves beyond a couple decades and the ones that can uh are are usually the exception to the rule like scientology has managed to just keep going but most cults sort of fall on the shoulders of a one charismatic leader who is too narcissistic to really groom a replacement. So unless one seizes power at the correct time, uh, when that leader, you know, falls apart, then the cult will collapse. And then there's also, you know, cults have sort of a, a rise and fall narrative, which is, you know, a, they they rise to power, they get a lot of um, people, and then they sort of buckle under their own weight. And there's paranoia that comes in, or maybe the the legal system comes in, and when by the time we see the Netflix movie, the cycle is complete. And we saw the trailer for the Netflix movie. So we're like, oh, it's a movie about cults, right? But there, when you're in it, um, you're in the middle of a life cycle and it's, you know, you might've started very early. I started fairly early in the life cycle of, of Sebukon, uh before it was, I would say a cult. And, you know, no cults just start normally a, a cult uh, mentality or occult criteria sort of take over a, an organization that was not a cult prior to that. Uh, so, you know, for people like us, like we have to live in a cult in real time as these sort of things that are serious red flags happen. But, you know, it's hard for us to be like, oh, is it a cult now? Because this thing happened or was it a cult yesterday? Um, and that's why people are like, oh, what was the moment that you knew? And I'm like, there was no moment. It was seven years. There was a lot of, it was a lot of small things um, adding up. So now I'll answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, thank you for, for breaking that whole thing down. 100% correct. And I really wish people could get, you know, yeah, that w when did you realize it was a cult? Well, <laughs> after I left. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, yeah. Anyway, and please actually, carry on. Yeah. I did not call Sebukon a cult in the book. Um, mm. And and actually, after the book came out, I still did not call it a cult. In fact, I found an old interview I did where I said that it wasn't a cult. Uh, and I think there were a couple reasons for that. One, one, I was a little ignorant as to what a cult is. And I had a very pop culture image of a cult. And I think when the book came out, like the stuff with Nexium was starting to come out where people got branded and enslaved and stuff like that. And so I sort of, I was comparing in my mind and I said, well, you know, no one died in Sebukon Jiu-Jitsu. Like sure, people's lives were, you know, very negatively affected. I'd say some people's lives were destroyed in essence, but I was sort of like comparing the destructive capacity of different cults. And I didn't really fully understand at that point that there's hundreds of cults in the United States that are existing that no one will ever know about. Uh, no one's ever going to go to prison because of it, and they will go through their life cycle and they'll fizzle out. And that's what Sebukon was. And just because it wasn't 
you know, one of the mega cults uh, were, you know, mass suicides or something like that, it doesn't mean that it wasn't. And then the other reason I didn't call it a cult was because I just wanted to be really, I wanted to give the story the complexity that I felt it deserved. Um, because these were all real people that I know and, and that I knew that were involved in it. And I just didn't want to, um, I just cared about them. And uh, that was important to me. Absolutely. I mean, who wants to acknowledge that they were part of something awful like that? Right. You know, it is not, but I mean, believe me, folks, it is, it is not hard to live in denial about this for a while. It, it is not even like you have to stretch or think or exert a lot of effort. You just don't even want to go there, you know, totally understandable. So I should say it was 2006. Yep. I was a young man. I was, um, I was 20. I left uh, home. I grew up in a, a very small rural town. Um, you know, very sort of uh, homogenous, you know, white middle class, uh, conservative. And I was just looking forward to creating my own identity. And I, I talk a lot about issues of identity in the book, which is, you know, you grow up, your own identity sort of emerges, but a huge part of it is based on your environment, your family. And then, like a lot of young people do, you leave home, either for college or something else, and you have this moment where you're like, oh, I'm in this new environment. People don't know who I am. And I'm kind of free to recraft my own identity. And that's why in those environments, you know, people, they, they come out as gay for the first time or, you know, they take up a hobby and they get really, really into it. I had a roommate. He changed his name like twice uh, <laughs> because, you know, he just was like playing with the, the coolest variation of his name or whatever. And, and I certainly did that. And um, I was I was in the, the correct time and place to become a true believer. And I happened to walk in a martial arts school. But if I would have walked in an art theater that had a cult like mentality, I would have joined up with them. It's just it was like I was ready to go. You know, I wanted something um, to say, OK, like this isn't a, a part of me. And um, I walked into unfortunately, a martial arts studio that was, um, you know, unlike any other in the, the world that I've really heard of. Um, yeah, for the most part, really heard of, you know, there, I think we were uh, sort of a pinnacle that uh, there's a lot of examples of other martial arts like Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu, but what was different about ours was that we were essentially a religion that was masquerading as a martial art. And that's the big difference that's important because this is not just a story about practicing a martial art that it turns out wasn't particularly effective and the teacher might not have had you know the, the particular credentials that he presented. Um, it is that, that did happen, but that's very, very common. And I just consider that you know fraud kind of on the level of like you bought the $500 course online and it turns out it wasn't that helpful, you know? Um, it's not good, but it's very, very common. And, you know, it's like, welcome to America. That's capitalism, baby. You know, you didn't get what you signed up for. What was different with us was that we were kind of indoctrinating young people into a, a religious uh, system that was, you know, forming over a period of years, sort of ad hoc. And then we were kind of weaponizing those young people to sort of go out and grow the organization at the cost of advancing their own lives and doing what people should be doing in their lives, which is, you know, starting a career, 
forming a deep relationship with someone else, you know, maybe getting married, maybe having kids, I'm not saying that everyone has to do that, of course, but you know, there is an upward trajectory that should happen in people's lives where they slowly, they get a little smarter, they grow up and they start getting their shit together. And we were um, retarding that kind of normal growth. Exactly. Excellent. I, I really, you know, you have, you have obviously, and I really don't want to comment on this because it's noteworthy. It needs to be noted for my audience that you have clearly put a lot of thought into your experience. You've written a whole book about it. You've, you've done some study about this. And the things you're saying are spot on. I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm, I'm quite impressed because usually I don't see this level of understanding of the process and, and, the, and the, the more objective reality of what's going on in that situation. Uh, so I'm, I have to say, I'm uh, good job <laughs> on the work Thanks. that you've done on this. Yeah. Have you found it cathartic to, to write the book you wrote and do the research that you did? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, so much. Um, I think that the, you know, not to jump ahead, but there were serious, you know, abuses that happened later in, in the dojo. And part of writing the book was as a way to sort of make that right as best that I could. And, um, you know, I didn't, I can only tell my story. I didn't want to tell other people's stories, but sometimes other people's stories are integral to what my experience was. So I remember a, a kind of internal conflict I had when I wrote this was like, are you just writing this to just get even, you know, are you just resentful and upset and you're just, you want to hurt someone because that's not what this should be about. But I remember when I finished the book and I had contacted all the people that I wanted to and kind of asked for permission and said, this is what I'm doing. Um, when I was ready to publish it, I just, I was thinking overwhelmingly of a small group of people that I really cared about and thinking that like this was gonna make it right with me and them. And um, that's kind of how I knew that I wasn't on some sort of revenge quest because otherwise I would have been thinking about, I'm finally gonna get this guy or whatever. Um, and I wasn't thinking about that and yeah, it was incredibly cathartic. And then after it got published, um, people contacted me every day for a couple months. And, um, and I was bracing for this backlash and it never really came. You know, people, even last week, I had a young woman contact me who I had totally forgotten about. And I saw her little avatar on Facebook and um, I was like, who? And she's like, oh, yeah, I was, you know, and this person and and um, and we had a long talk on uh, on Facebook and and, you know, she said, thank you. I've been I had been saying this for years, but I wasn't quite sure myself, you know, sometimes maybe I was overreacting or whatever. And, um, you know, all of that has really made me feel like I'm in the moral right when I talk about this, because that's important to me. Absolutely. And sometimes articulating what other people are thinking you know, they, they need that. Right. And that's the help you can provide is sometimes just doing that much, you know. So, okay, so you happen to basically wander into the wrong place at the wrong time and things move forward from there. So what, so what was it that happened? You, you know, you're, you have this interest, you're going to develop this hobby, martial arts, this sounds exciting. Here we go. Okay, well, what happened? Um, 
So I, I began training in uh, 2006 and Cebucon was um, in Monterey, California. That was where the headquarters was. And at that point we were kind of a small martial arts school. We had a good reputation in, in the traditional martial arts community. My teacher, um, we called him Concho. That was sort of his title. Uh, his real name was Julio Toribio. And, um, and he had, you know, very excellent kind of credentials in, in the martial arts world as far as people that he had trained under and, and his black belts and whatnot. Um, did, and, did you did you do it? I'm sorry. Did you do any research before you actually started? I, I, I realized I should have asked you that a second ago. I did. But, you know, that's the problem with, um, you know, when you're trying to evaluate a martial arts school is you don't know what to really look for. And um, I remember going in my first night and I noticed that there were almost everyone was a black belt. And and there was 20, 30 people on the mat in the class. And maybe five to 10 of them were not black belts. Everyone else was a black belt. So just my pop culture idea of martial arts, I was like, oh, this seems unusual. Cause I thought a black belt was like the pinnacle. They were very rare. And I brought that up to uh, an instructor who said, hey, do you have any questions? I said, man, it seems like there's a lot of black belts. And he said, oh, well in Sabucon, we have a lot of different levels of black belts. And I should have asked for more information because that in itself doesn't explain anything. But I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. And then from that day on, whenever anyone would say to me like, well, how come there's so many black belts here? I'd be like, well, we have a lot of different levels of black, <laughs> you know? So it's a lot when you start training martial arts, you just, you're not equipped to, to answer the questions. It'd be like if you took a tour of a food processing plant you know, how do you know if they're, if everything's the code and if they're following the right procedures, like you just don't know you're at a huge disadvantage. That's um, right. That's right. And that's the thing about researching stuff is it, is it can, you can fall into the most obvious holes if you don't know anything about what you're getting into. So, yeah. And the internet was not what it is now back then. So even now when you Google, uh, Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu, you know, they've, they they clearly got a guy that that knows something about search engine optimization because they're sort of uh, kind of dominating page one. Uh, I, I think I might be on a little bit of it, but I don't put the word Seibukan Jiu-Jitsu kind of upfront in my book all the time. Um, so it's not as mentioned as it would be. But yeah, back then it was very difficult to kind of verify who people were. Nowadays it, it's it's considerably easier and that's why traditional martial arts are sort of being ran out of the community because uh, there's just such a huge level of screw. I mean, we're on a witch hunt nowadays to find any martial art that's not 100% effective and and get them, basically. That's cool. I mean, in terms of cleaning house, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of getting from that flow or that idea. Yeah, like a, a really popular Instagram is McDojo Life. Uh, there's another one called Fake Black Belts. And uh, uh, an old website that's been around for decades is Bullshito. And <laughs> these are people that their their mission is to root out fake uh, martial arts and fake black belts. Uh, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think policing our own community is fine. Uh, however, I, in a weird way, I'm oddly defensive of them because I say like, hey, people are allowed to practice fake martial arts. Um, you know, at some point, it's it's the instructor 
should be held accountable, but also uh, the students have a part to play in that. And again, that's where I come back to like Sebukon, I always stress this, like we were more than just a fake martial art, like we were a cult. We, we had a religious aspect that, and getting back to my kind of journey. So, you know, you start out and you're practicing martial arts and it's, um, it's sort of like what you see is what you get. And it's very kind of traditional Japanese martial arts, uh, very well organized, you know, kind of mechanically sound. And there's something in it that we called the Seibukan philosophy. Of course, we would never call it a religion like that wouldn't work. We couldn't be like, oh, we, we have a religion that you could study. Uh, so we called it the Seibukan philosophy. And it was sort of like an onion, like it had different layers. And the top layer, I'll, I'll divide it into like three components. So the top layer was uh, sort of a Western self-help system that you'd see something kind of like Tony Robbins, very inoffensive uh, sort of generic buzzwords, like we're gonna, we're gonna help you reach your maximum potential, no limitations. Uh, the, the sort of core dogma that they would hit you with in the beginning was awareness, assessment, and action. And uh, on its face, that doesn't sound scary at all. Awareness, assessment, action, it works good for self-defense, which is how they framed it. Um, you know, awareness, you're in, a, you're in a parking lot at night, you, you need to be aware and look at the dark corners or whatever. Assessment, you see someone coming towards you, you don't know what their intention is, you make a decision if they're a threatening person, and then action, you know, decide what's appropriate to do. And so that makes total sense. And I still think about that sometimes today, like it's a, it's a good rule of thumb. And, and then as you train a little more, you start talking about, well, how can you use awareness assessment action sort of in your everyday interactions with people, in your relationships, uh, with your, you know, your personal health and, and with your financial decisions and things like that. So then, you know, we start leading into uh, just what I said, like, uh, there's another group of three buzzwords, which is your your health, your relationships, and we called it your abundance, which is code for money. Uh, and and so we said, so those are three words that it's important to maintain. Like think about how you're maintaining your health and your relationships with other, and then your abundance, which that was a whole coded language because um, you know we were charging people a lot of money, and and so we talked about abundance a lot, which is. Uh, it's just like you would see at a lot of uh, churches, you know, hey, if you give money, you're going to get a lot more money back somehow. You know? it, it was what was it actually a kind of prosperity gospel you guys were preaching in that Absolutely. sense? Yeah, 100 percent. OK, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's I've been down that road many times. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Right. I'm, I'm curious to know with your. Yeah. I, I, we talked oh, yeah. all day about contrasting it to Scientology. Yeah. So. So that was sort of the top level of the onion, which is sort of a generic self-help system, which um, was, you know, kind of non-threatening that you could introduce to a, a colored belt, you know, white, yellow, green, whatever. Then when you get kind of deeper into it, you start talking about the elements of nature, the, the four elements, uh, water, earth, wind, fire. It was a different order, but, uh, and Again, it's it's used in a martial sense, which is, hey, fire is like your aggressiveness and how willing you are to attack and be offensive. And if you're a really timid person in the dojo, then we would say, hey, like, let's try to like up your fire a little bit, uh, make you more assertive. And then, you know, so on and so forth. Earth was like your your stubbornness or your willingness to commit to a course of action. 
wind was sort of your ability to interact with people and so on and so forth. Uh, was and, this all fully developed the day you walked in or was this, an, this was an ongoing development as you correct. learned? Okay. Yeah. We, you know, some of it was planned out and a lot of it we just sort of made up as we went along. I, I know Contro made some of this up um, because the students were thirsty for more of the, the religion. Uh, so, you know, then we get into the elements of nature and again, like that's not too scary. Most people have, have, heard about things like that and it's it's just like horoscopes or whatever so it's it's like oh okay i can kind of get on board with that and and then we started kind of going deeper which is um the 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 japanese shinto ism that was really intertwined uh Seibukan drew heavily on the shinto religion which uh if people don't know if you think like native american uh shamanism which is, you know, a little bit vague. It's it's more ill-defined, but it's sort of like worship of nature. Um, Japanese Shintoism, that was sort of the dominant, it's not even a religion, but it was the dominant kind of spiritual practice in Japan prior to Buddhism being introduced. And if you go to Japan today, you know, you see um, that Shintoism is just a part of their culture, that there's all sorts of signs and, and uh, you know, sort of etiquette niceties everywhere, just like in America, you know, Christianity is a part of our heritage and, you know, you'll, you'll see Christian imagery everywhere and people don't think about it, but it's just like, that's, we were founded by, you know, Judeo Christian cultures or whatever. Um, so we started getting more into the Shintoism in, uh, in our, uh, take on, on the Seibukan uh, or Seibukan's kind of religious take. And that only would happen kind of later after you became kind of a black belt, and the way that would manifest is the elements, we would introduce like three additional elements beyond the fire, earth, wind, water, which was the void consciousness and balance, which then we started getting into uh, God and the higher power and uh, your own consciousness. Then we started kind of getting into the animal worship. We had, we had uh, an animal that corresponded with each element of nature. Um, we wouldn't overtly worship them, but I mean, they were, they were sort of presented in Shintoism, you know, animals can be deities. Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of old Japanese stories about, you know, the fox that's actually a, a spirit that would, you know, lead people in the forest or things like that. So we had a lot of that. Um, Is that kind and, of a spirit animal sort of thing? Exactly. More of a mascot kind of thing than a, than a, you're worshiping yeah. it, but it sort of symbolizes or represents you or represents this concept that you can think with. Right. And kind of the furthest that we would go is, um, you know, so in Shintoism, they, they have a lot of shrines. And if you go in Japanese households today, there'll be a lot of uh, shrines. They call it like, um, a uh, well, we called it the shomen, which is a, a Japanese word for, um, you know, kind of like a shrine that's at the head of the household. Um, and so we would put the different animals, uh, uh, you know, front and center, like a statue of them at the shrine. We would bow to them. And then we would kind of like meditate on the wisdom of the bear or the, you know, the fierceness of the wolf for things like that. So again, like it, it came right up to that line and it just stopped short and you were never sure. You're like, man, am I, am I worshiping animals? No. Right. I didn't pray to an animal, but at the same time, I just bowed to a statue of an owl. And uh, <laughs> right. it's clearly a little confusing. And then just to wrap it up, like, then we started getting into really, really deep stuff, which is, you know, we had 21 concepts that were spread out amongst seven gates. And this is the third level. 
So the second level was like the Shinto stuff. The third level was how our religion coincided with progression in the system of Seibukan, which is that as you get promoted and you get belts, then you are kind of considered that, okay, you've ascended this like sort of spiritual ladder to enlightenment. Um, something I'm sure very similar to like maybe the OT levels, right? Oh, the uh, entire the entire bridge to total freedom. All of it is a level by level status climb right. through the levels of Scientology. And it gives you social status. It gives you, you're paying more money. So of course it's taking from your finances at the same time. But the whole theory is the prosperity gospel. Every level you do is supposed to make you more able, more effective, more efficient, more spiritually aware. Right. I I think it's probably same same for levels in in the group you were involved in. But yeah, yeah. please carry on. And then you get into um, numerology was very important to us. So there was uh, so we believe that the three most powerful numbers were three, seven, and twenty one, which are multiples of each other. Which is why there's awareness, assessment, action, and then there's health, relationships, abundance. Everything had to be a triangle because we right. believe the triangle was the ultimate symbol. Um, so then, you know, there was seven black belt levels and, and there was seven gates, there was 21 concepts and you were expected to kind of memorize them. Uh, and, and you had to write papers on them to the point where getting a black belt at one point or at a certain point, it, it was equally mental and spiritual as it was physical. And you really had to have a strong grasp of the Seibukan philosophy, as we called it. Uh, in order to progress almost equally as important as sort of your physical skills, which became less important over time. And because it was so tied in with progression, um, progression meant something different in Sabukon than other martial arts, which is, you know, most martial arts studios, you train, your skill goes up over time, and one day an instructor comes to you and says, hey, I think you're ready for your brown belt. And... Um, and it's, you know, often there's very little fanfare behind it. You're awarded a brown belt after a class, you, people clap, and you take a picture for the gram, and uh, and it's all good. But in Seibukan, because progression meant that you were kind of one step closer to, uh, to, you know, healing was sort of the ultimate goal. That was the 21st concept was healing, self-mastery. Um, our belt promotions were a big freaking deal, and we had these huge celebrations and and uh, it was it was very kind of uh, choreographed, um, very very ceremonial. People were crying and um, and it wow, was tears. Yeah, I cried. So, I mean, wow. So, okay. So so and every level. Yeah, it was. Uh, okay. It was an emotional payoff, and it was structured yeah. to be an emotional payoff. Right. And it's this moment of recognition, and it was a high that once you got it, you wanted the next one, baby. Right. Yeah. There it is. There it is. Yeah. It's it's a it's a it's a um, consistent component across these groups that the that the the thing that's one of the things that is keeping you there is that euphoria, that awe, that generation of. Um, you know, something larger and bigger and, and more grand than you that you are part of. And you get to ascend, you know, this ascended master's concept is centuries old. Yeah. And uh, and it's just been a model. And really, it's just a framework, you know, that you can build a belief system on. And you literally just described beautifully how you can progressively invent and build 
a a system and um and yeah the triangle the three pointed system it's easy it's not hard to come up with three elements at a time that have some relation to one another hubbard did it mm-hmm. i mean I, I that's why i've i'm so like uh i i just love, I love all the stuff you're describing here because it's so classic it's um you know in scientology you have the s the scientology symbol is an s and a, and double triangles there's two triangles interlocked in the s and the top triangle is knowledge responsibility and control which are supposed to intertwine, work together. The more knowledge you get, the more responsibility you can take, the more control you can have over something. Hmm. And that's supposed to equal, that That total is supposed to give you a mastery or control over things. It's how you lead, it's how, you lead, it's how you're in charge, is you, you focus on knowledge, responsibility, and control. What about the bottom one? The bottom one is more widely used in Scientology, and it is the ARC triangle, the affinity, reality, and communication. And these three things, affinity is degree of closeness or liking for something. Reality is how real, how much agreement there is between you and others. And communication, of course, is how you create affinity in reality as you communicate. You know, uh, verbally or non-verbally, any kind of communication counts. You add all these three components up and you get understanding. This is how you understand anything as you Mm-hmm. Have, you communicate with it, you have reality with it, and you have some degree of liking or affinity for it, whether it's a person, thing, subject, whatever. And ARC is talked about probably more than almost any other concept in Scientology is, is the ARC triangle. It's a very, very uh, widespread, understood principle in Scientology. And, uh, and Hubbard made a great deal, got a lot of mileage out of this uh, with these two triangles and with this kind of thinking. Some. Yeah. Do you think that those triangles could be a positive model for kind of interacting with the world? Or do you think that just there's no way that it could end up being healthy in the long What do you think about that? I don't happen to think that there's anything inherently evil or wrong with affinity, reality, communication, or knowledge, responsibility, and control. Or I could sit here for an afternoon and I could create probably five other triangles of, of similar value, right, using these kinds of, of ideas. Um, I, I don't have a, a problem with that. What I have a problem with and what I think probably I'm, I'm thinking will probably run into with your group as well is the fact that the dial gets turned up to 11. Right. That's the problem. It's not that these things are unworkable. It's not that these things don't have some usefulness or some helpfulness to them. But when you start making claims that this is universally how people act, this is universally what people respond to, you could go to China and use the ARC triangle just as effectively as you could use it here. You know, on any one individual, it will always work 100% of the time. If it doesn't, you did something wrong. Mm. Right. That starts that starts opening the introversion door that it's not that this principle doesn't work. This principle always works. So if it doesn't work, then you're the one who's in error. Right. And that's where the more that's where that that's where you open the door to faith and and dogma and, you know, um, enforced belief and invalidation of the individual you know, who's honestly trying to make this thing work, but it doesn't always work. There are, there are no universally workable principles. There's always exceptions. That was a big thing with the actual martial arts training itself, 
which ah. was that um, one thing that is is just common knowledge now to me and to many people, which is that um, all techniques, there is no technique that's 100% effective 100% of the time. Um, you know, techniques can be modified. And I, I personally experienced this because I'm very small. I'm, I'm uh, like 120 pounds. Um, wow. So because I'm at one end of the spectrum, uh, there are some techniques that uh, if someone is close, even close to the other end of the spectrum, approaching 200 pounds or 170, uh, I'm certainly going to have to modify certain techniques because it's just the physics don't always work. You know, it's hard for me to handle that much body weight and manipulate it in, in a certain way. And in, uh, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I study now, that's just accepted right? It, it's, it's accepted like, hey, you're going to have to modify some of these techniques. Like you can't, you can't hip toss a 200 pound man. Um, your body cannot bear that much weight. It's just not going to happen. Uh, but in Sebukan, you know, that there was a, there was a huge conflict of interest because that would lead into admitting that possibly some of the techniques didn't work all the time. And that would mean that maybe the person that created them, which in our case was our founder, Concho, you know, yeah, maybe he made a mistake. Maybe this doesn't work. So it was always like, no, you can, you can hip toss this 200 pound dude, Louis. You're just not, you're not doing it correctly. You're not doing it. And I'm like, I cannot, it's, you know, and then, you know, your instructor, he's, he's 175 pounds. So he's like, I'll do it right now. It's easy. You know, he's like, see, I use no strength. And I'm like, eh, did you though? Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> that was something that in in Sebukan, we were always trying to sort of protect the fantasy of, hey, no matter how small you are, you can do anything to anybody. Um, and that's one of the big myths of martial arts. It's true and not true, which is the whole size doesn't matter myth. Um, size absolutely matters. It's, it's an important thing. Like I can... Um, you know, if someone has no training uh, or no experience, you know, on the mat, regardless of their size, like I will probably be able to to defeat them in in a in a match or in a fight. Um, but as they as they get some experience, even if they don't have as much experience or skill as me, their size will kind of compensate for their lack of, and it'll be tremendously difficult for me, um, no matter how good I am. And that's just common knowledge in in modern martial arts, but in traditional martial arts. They're so obsessed with this um, this narrative of the small guy that is able to beat all the big guys that sometimes they are they have some blinders on a little bit. Well, big time, you know. And I I know this will be a controversial statement, but I'm not. That's never stopped me. Uh, Michael High White, uh, who I who I love watching in movies, is a he's a black martial artist and movie star, and he talked about and got in a lot of trouble for saying that. You know, Bruce Lee uh, doesn't really have the weight that he has or the size that he has. And, 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 and he made some comparisons that, that pissed a lot of people off because, you know, you can't criticize Bruce Lee. Right. <laughs> Ever. Anywhere. Under any circumstances. Right. right. And, you can, and I look at that from the outside <laughs> and I kind of go, Really? <laughs> really and and uh and i laugh and i'm only laughing about it because it ha there's this mystique to it and of course the thing with bruce lee is he's become an icon he's not even a human being anymore uh, <laughs> you know i mean that's just kind of where, totally where yeah that's just where bruce lee is at but um you know these guys who are still alive chuck norris you know uh michael high white these other guys can that you can go challenge them they're still alive you can go 
see them fight, you know. You can watch videos of them fighting. You know where their skill set's at. Bruce Lee never competed. Bruce Lee never you, – you don't have any video of Bruce Lee actually yeah. fighting somebody else anywhere, hardly anywhere. Some grainy black and whites from his early days, and that's about it. So – but we've we've risen, you know, we've risen him to this level of mystique, and it and it speaks to the only reason I I, I thought of all this is because, um, uh, you know, again I'm not claiming expertise, but, um, but but yeah, size does. It, it just seems common sense wise. You could look in on this from the outside and go, well, yeah, of course size matters. What do you you know, three hundred pound guy versus some hundred and fifty pound guy? There's you've got to change up your your game somehow with right. that. You know, so to think there's some universally workable wrist lock that's going to get every single person, you know, or or whatever move master move you have, I, 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 yeah, it seems to me that would be a, a recipe for disaster under any circumstances. And in that sense, the the physical martial arts that we taught in Sebukan, um, that was where they became harmful because we uh, we sort of propagated this myth that, and I would see it all the time. And I'm sure when I was a younger student, people did it for me, which is uh, a young person comes in the dojo and they're very timid. They're not sure if something can work and you want to boost their confidence a little bit. So you grab a really big guy and you're like, Hey, do this wrist lock on this big guy. And of course he's sort of in on the game and he lets you kind of hurl him and toss him uh, back and forth. And then, you know, in the short term, you feel very empowered and, um, and it's a net positive. But if that myth is kind of propagated day after day, uh, you are, you know, we're doing tremendous harm to you because you're going to come up against someone that has some real intentions. One of the, the mottos that we had in the dojo was no challenge, no resistance, no injury. Again, it's, it's the group of three. And no resistance was an important part of that because we believed uh, that you should not resist your partners in training um, because that if you were to resist them, you would get hurt because the techniques we were doing were very dangerous and we didn't want to hurt people. So we had this kind of motto of no resistance and that in hindsight was dangerous because our no matter how legitimate our techniques may have been, our training methodologies were not correct. So we were never implementing those techniques against any sort of realistic uh, style opponent. And then, you know, when I left Sebukan and I had many black belts in, in different martial arts and I was a seventh don in Sebu, I was at the pinnacle. It was the highest rank that you could really get in the art at that time. And went to a, a school where it was full live sparring and I just got the floor wiped with me um, by people that have been training for months, you know, kids that have been training for months. And they had these kids, they knew two, three techniques tops, but they had practiced it at full speed, 100% training, and I had not. And um, and that was a big eye opener. Uh, oh, I'll bet that was a day you were had your eyes a little wide. Yeah. And, and back then I was still training in Sebucon. Um, it was very unpopular that I went and cross trained. And and I know why, because they're like, oh, well, if people go cross train, they might start realizing that, uh, you know, this isn't all that. And then I went back to Sebucon and I sort of started infecting uh, the school with, you know, just like, you know, little at first, but like I, I would start seeing people demonstrate stuff and I'd be like, you know, <laughs> I don't think that works at the other place I'm going. Um, and, and that was that was a problem. And that didn't happen until years into it. 
I was a true believer for the first uh, probably five years. And I did, you know, I didn't cross train. I was 100% dedicated to the martial art. Uh, and I, I was even on the verge of making some, some dangerous decisions. I was thinking about dropping out of college, um, you know, so I could be uh, sort of a, we had a program called the Uchideshi program. I was and, just about to ask you about this because it seems this perfect segue into it. Yeah, so most cults are not 100% true believers. There's people that are on the periphery and are sort of casual. They have outside lives. But every cult needs a core group that is driving the, the enterprise forward, and those are the true believers. And with ours, um, we had – it was funny because uh, who was the young woman that was in the Indian cult that was in a couple episodes? Oh, yeah, Sarah, Sarah Landry. Yeah, so she had her core uh, program that everyone was always being kind of driven towards. Um, you had the C program. Is the that what it's or- called? The C organization, yeah. Right. right, and that sounds like maybe it was similar. And oh, it, yeah, it's, it's At, always- the, the core dedicated 24-7. Do anything, yeah. it, do anything for the group. It always comes down to like whatever we call it, it's, it's full-time indoctrination and it's a lot more money. That's right. Uh, so- <laughs> well, at the C org, it's a billion years. Oh yeah. So 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 all you're handing over is you know your life. <laughs> no biggie, just your whole life. That that's all. We had a program called the uh, the Uchideshi program. Uchideshi means like inside student, and it's popular um, in some in in Japan, which is you have a live-in student. They live in the dojo, and they stay there overnight. They clean it. They you know sometimes they'll cook for the uh, instructor and. They are, you know, it's Luke Skywalker on Dagobah with Yoda. That's that's kind of the image. Okay. And we, we definitely tried to capitalize on that. And uh, so originally, the Uchideshi program was an intensive uh, year-long training where you sign a contract and you say, okay, I'm agreeing that I'm going to be 100% dedicated to the martial art and to Concho for one year. I'm going to go to every class, do all the seminars, and to some extent, I'm going to be Concho's kind of like, uh, you know, helper too. I'm going to help him, you know, run errands or whatever. And the expectation is when that's done, I have, um, you know, I, I get sort of my bona fides are set. I, I have this credential that I trained intensively under a master for a year. And then I'll go on and I'll create my own school. Okay. A Seibukan school, of course. Well, uh, of course. <laughs> yeah. To which you'll pay your fees to Concho every year. Uh, how much would this program cost? So I, I know for the bulk of its life, it was $500 a month, a month. Okay. All right. Yeah. That is not a small contribution. I mean, that's insane. I mean, I don't know what 500 <laughs> times 12 is, but like you could, you could almost go to a college. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. No, that's oh. 6,000 bucks a year. That's what you, yeah. that's so what that's, that's out. a state college. And in fact, when I was considering being an Uchideshi, that was sort of the thought, which is like, well, this is, I could take my tuition money and I could spend it on this because they're almost the same. And, exactly. you know, and I, the only reason I didn't was because my parents would kill me. Um, and, and it wasn't their money. I was paying my own money to go to college, which is debt. Uh, you know, I was getting in debt to do it. And that was the other thing which was like, well, I, I really can't, I can't leave, you know. Uh, thank God, because I think I got a, more of a return off my college education than Uchideshi. But so so the Uchideshi, when I first joined the dojo, there were like four or five of them. And they were very, very good. And um, 
they pretty much all did go form their own schools. So the program was kind of working as intended. Um, but what happened was everyone, the real reason people envied the Uchideshi was they were the closest to Concho personally. They had that relationship, right? So the program kind of morphed that it was, it was less about the training and it was more about the access. You were sort of paying for access to the master. And then a couple things happened. One, people started doing the Uchideshi and they never went and made their own school afterwards. Uh, because they really didn't want to. And in some ways we didn't equip them to, you know, like we, we, we made them really good martial artists, but like you need other things to create a business dojo. You know, you need to know how to, how to get a business license, how to pay your taxes. And, you know, there's, there's so many other parts of it, how to buy a, a lease of building and stuff. This so, is what this is what literally every single dentist and chiropractor learns after they graduate. Right, I imagine so. Everyone, and in fact, I just have to comment. Uh, this is one of the ways that Scientology has an inroad into these folks because they have a business consultant wing. <laughs> that's how. That's one of the ways they get they get so many dentists and chiropractors and doctors is they go in with a management consultancy package that has nothing to do with the with the Church of Scientology at first glance right oh, it, ju- like it a, just it's like a dba kind of thing like you it, don't even know right away it's a it's a hubbard management system oh. right and it's a it's a rollout package of about seven steps that take an extended period of time to implement in your business and you put all those in place and you've got a little organization that looks exactly like a scientology organization structurally and this is huh. supposed to be the best model to build your business on. And this is one of the ways that Scientology has made millions and millions of dollars is through this business consultancy. It's actually a very, very smart idea. It's a brilliant idea. Yeah. Yeah. They came up with it in the 80s. Sebukan should have done that. They would have, uh, and they could have legitimately served people, um, depending on how it was implemented, of course. Yeah. But that was always a big problem with us, which is that. Um, as we got deeper into Sebukon, our ability to function in the real world uh, got hampered. One, because we, we didn't acquire skills that we would normally be doing at this phase in our lives. Um, you know, we were still living in crashing on couches in friends' apartment. You know, we hadn't, we hadn't signed a lease on an apartment, let alone we're trying to get a commercial building for our own school. And then on top of that, we also, we were so deep in the philosophy, we were kind of programmed. It was difficult for us to talk to other people, but I'll get to that in a second. So Uchideshi program, basically it it was spiraling. It it started escalating, which is one, people started doing multi-year contracts because they didn't want to give up their access to Concho. Um, And they didn't really want to start their own school. And we had people doing four or five years as an Uchideshi. And and at that point, I think they would cut deals and they would pay probably less money. Sliding, sliding scale for five years. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, everything was negotiable. Uh, right. And people were just like, oh, you know, Concho is so generous. Like, he's only charging me 200 bucks a month to do another year or something. And I'd be like, well, maybe he just knew like 200 is better than nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> he knew that's what you could pay. Um, yep. And that's what started happening. People, at this point, we started growing. And we opened dojos in the next town over in Santa Cruz, and then we opened them in, in Carmel, and then in other parts of Northern California, Alaska, Oregon, uh, Washington, and then suddenly Europe started happening. 
you know, we had this Hungarian cadre, Switzerland, um, Mexico, Puerto Rico, and someone comes from, you know, Mexico and it's like, Hey, I can't do a year with you. Um, and I can't, but you know, could I do six months? And it's like, yeah, six month Uchideshi. And then someone comes, Oh, can I do three months? Can I do one month as an Uchideshi? Uh, and then at the end, it just got ridiculous. Oh, I'm here. I can only be here a week and a half. I'm an Uchideshi for that time. And basically it just became like the VIP program. Right. Morphed and, into something else. And at one point we like, we had more Uchideshi than regular students in certain classes. Um, and they were all, you know, just sort of like strutting around being like, oh, I'm, I know things about, you know, Concho that, that no one else knows. Um, and it just, it got ridiculous, but it also, you know, it, it kind of got harmful. Um, and it was just a way to kind of keep, I think students in general, not just Uchideshi, but they had this sort of codependency after a period of time, which is they, you know, Seibukan was supposed to be preparing us to go out in the world and, and live a better life, be better to other people. And it got to the point where not only could we not go out in the world, we didn't really see it as safe anymore. And, you know, people thought that that Seibukan was a viable career path, um, which, you know, it, it absolutely was not. We had people trying to create dojos and failing over in the later part of our, you know, in the early times, people would start dojos and they would work, they'd be successful. Um, but you know, in the, the next, the last four years or so, like almost all of them failed and, and almost all of them have failed to this day. That is very interesting. Speaks to the system as well. Um, I, I have so many questions. Let me ask you this first. There is a, a complete, by the way, there is, and, and something I've, I've not really ever talked about a whole lot because I never really looked at it this way, but you're bringing something to mind here with this whole Ushadechi, Ush. Uchideshi? Uchideshi. Uchideshi, yes. The Uchideshi program. Uh, There's a complete parallel in Scientology. Yeah. Yeah, in the 1960s, L. Ron Hubbard went to England and he set up shop over there and he started calling people from all over the world to come to England to train under him personally. Hmm. And he delivered a a class called the St. Hill Special Briefing Course, which ended up going on for like seven years. Continuous enrollment. People would come to England on their own dime, pay him an exorbitant amount of money to be lectured to by him two or three times a week and get supervision by him on their counseling, on their auditing procedures. This was where they were going to be getting the latest and greatest bleeding edge developments because it was right there in England where Mm -hmm. Hubbard was developing it. And they were full-time. Full, full, full time there. They were there for months or even uh, years, depending on the person. And this was, a, like I said, a continual enrollment thing. And he always had, you know, a few hundred people out there. And this is when Scientology really took off because what he was training them to do was become, he was training them at the highest levels of Scientology, and they would go out and start a Scientology yeah. group. This is how right. they opened up uh seattle this is how they opened up a ton of places actually hawaii uh where these saint hill graduates as they were called would go open up scientology in new countries new areas and and this is this was actually if i if i have it right this was the period of time of the of the most international expansion of scientology where more churches and groups were opened up by these saint hill graduates 
And uh, and Hubbard, this was also the period when Hubbard's income skyrocketed, took way off. Right, I imagine. Yeah, so I just find it funny that there's that there's such a parallel there because even when you first told me about this and I was reading about it in your book, I, I didn't connect those dots. But then as soon as you talked about just now when we were talking about them going up and opening up other schools and failing at opening up those other schools, by the way, because that happened in Scientology too. You know, they weren't all successes. Yeah, every now that I think about it, virtually every Sebukan affiliate dojo that ever opened was started by Anuchi Deshi. And it was it was sort of seen as like, hey, you know, your training's all well and good, but if you really, you know, want to go to the next level and open your own school, this is what you have to do. And for a lot of us, so we were at the headquarters dojo in Monterey. Um, so we saw Concho all the time. And it was like, but we, when we would have these huge gatherings twice a year uh, where all the dojos would have to come in and, you know, bring their students and it'd be a big seminar. Um, you know, one, they saw the us as gods, the other students, they're like, wow, you get to talk to him every day. What is he like? What is it like training with him? So like, we really enjoyed that status and, and, you know, and then I felt some of the, uh, the mystique because you know, at that point, I was a high-ranking student, and and the the mystique of Concho would transfer onto people like me, and people would say, "Hey, come out to, you know, Mendocino, teach a seminar there. You know, we'll let you stay with us. We'll we'll pay for your travel." Da, 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 which I did, um, and you know, it's easy. Like I, my ego was getting stroked too. I was like, "This is great. They think I can do all sorts of shit that I can't." <laughs> Uh, really it's, do. Isn't it intoxicating? I it I can't is. tell you how many times I experienced that in Scientology as a Sea Org member. You go to a place, everybody respects you automatically, calling you sir, you know, yep. all that kind of stuff. Oh, it's intoxicating, man. There's there you have to be a god to resist that kind of stuff. And imagine you know? being 22, right? And having putting on a black belt and people call you a special word they call you wrenchy or they call you kiyoshi and this is like your special title i mean it's like who's who wants to give that up it's like what am i gonna go work at a subway or am i gonna go to this place where like i'm this special word and uh people want to take private lessons with me on which you know i get to keep 40 percent of the fee for that because of course the rest should go to uh Poncho, but of yeah, course it, it should <laughs> it's it really is intoxicating and um it, it was funny that different uh talking about the prosperity gospel you know because uchideshi were paying such exorbitant fees um they simply could not progress certainly financially in their lives um they were they were kept in poverty i mean they 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 had to not only come up with their Uchideshi fee, but then they also had to find some place to live. At different points, we had places that we could give them to live. Um, we bought an apartment one time, and it was a large apartment, basically right upstairs from the dojo, and it could fit, you know, I mean, six, seven people could live in there, 10 people, I don't know. Um, and, uh, you know, then that even made the experience more fun because then it was like summer camp, you know, and it's like, oh, come live with the other Uchideshi. Um, but that that degenerated into this complete cesspool of debauchery and just like super heavy drinking and, you know, a bunch of 20 year olds that that had no, you know, didn't even want to clean their room, let alone uh, that place became a, a super dark place. Uh, I think there were some sexual assaults that happened there. Um, 
and uh, there were drugs coming in and out at certain points, you know, probably not like hard drugs, but you know, um, it, so anyways, um, I'm fascinated by that. I mean, it, it speaks volumes about the actual character of the teachings and, and, and what these guys were learning, I should say. You know, I don't right. want to put it, I don't want to lay everything at the feet of the, uh, of the guy, um, because, you know, it's a codependent relationship. Both sides have responsibility for what's going on in a cultic relationship. Yeah. It's, not, it's not complete victim, you know, master BDSM sort of a situation. Um, that being said, I'm not, obviously, I'm not referring to children when I say stuff like that. And obviously, I'm not referring to, you know, giving anybody a pass or saying that rape victims are responsible for what happened to them. That's not, that, that, you know, let's not go there. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that you have these young men who are going into the system of, you know, this, this religious system that you described, where they're learning these levels of, of discipline and they're learning physical discipline, but then they're also 20-year-olds and they're acting like a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of knuckleheads, right. you know. And the, um, the sort of male-female dynamic was interesting because... You know, this is a problem in all martial arts, which is it's it's not just male dominated in terms of attendance, but, you know, uh, males are attracted to martial arts probably in greater numbers. I mean, they definitely are. But as far as the reason why, um, you know, one reason that makes sense to me is that it's just it's a physical contact sport and that especially men, when they get done with school, you know, they don't have as many avenues to play sports and things like that. So um, this is something and as our society you know, uh, starts scrutinizing men more carefully than in the past as far as their indiscretions or the way they treat women. You know, a martial arts studio, it seems like a safe place to just just be a gross man, you know, and just tackle someone and, and just, you know, do kind of traditionally masculine things. Um, and in Seibukan, you know, there's obviously a power dynamic there all the time, which is the, the, the master-student dynamic, teacher-student dynamic. And it's physical in nature, which is a whole different dimension, which is in order to teach someone martial arts, to some degree, you need to physically dominate them in, in the course of training. And then when you throw a woman into that mix, especially a young woman uh, who is, you know, maybe had some sort of negative experience, physical experience, and, and that's why they're here in the first place. And then you have a, a, a young man teaching them. Uh, it's, it's really a, a recipe for potential disaster which is, you know, these uh, young men, and I never dated anyone that I, that I taught or trained with or anything like that, and I'm happy about that. Um, but, you know, they just can't help themselves. You know, you're, you're, you're in your early 20s, you know, like you're on the hunt for a mate, you know, and, and it's, it's very easy to kind of leverage your position in martial arts to, uh, to you know, woo a female, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And that happened a lot. Men were dating their uh, their colleagues or even their students, people they were teaching. Uh, men were recruiting their girlfriends to come and train in the dojo, which I always saw as like a weird way for them to kind of like secure their power position over them, which is, hey, come train in the dojo and then you can just bow to me forever because I'll always be your... Uh, I saw a dude, there was this whole family that trained, family of, uh, you know, a couple brothers and... and um, and the senior student was the oldest brother and he recruited his mother to be his student. And I remember, I, I relayed this in the book, she was training under him and I saw her and him interact at a seminar and um, he, she 
called him by his first name and uh and then she stopped herself and she said oh i mean sensei and i was like come on i was like i don't care who you are your mom should not be calling you sensei but it was again it was this weird it was this weird undercurrent of dominance that exists in martial arts and then it led to more nefarious thing which nefarious things which is uh you know uh high-ranking students actually sleeping with junior students clearly junior students either in their school or in the other school in which it became a little bit more nebulous because it's like okay i'm sleeping with this student in this other school but you know she's not my student uh she's just a junior student in the next town over or whatever and and then it it got really messy because um i for a fact there was times where it was not consensual or it was reported that it wasn't consensual or there was alcohol involved so then you know uh, you, you cannot consent when you're intoxicated so then it's like uh you know this is this is really uh, different people have different opinions on that i mean i personally would consider that sexual assault and i think that's reasonable to do but regardless it shouldn't even matter because it's inappropriate it's very well, very inappropriate exactly and this is top down this is this uh, this kind of thing the thing we're talking about right now comes directly from the leadership and from and right. from the sensei, right? Because it is 100% within his uh, scope of power, and and even it's appropriate that he lay down rules or he or she lay down rules of conduct, you know, ethical guidelines or or things to follow. If I mean, if you're going to be so intrusive as to create a religious philosophy or a spiritual philosophy of some kind, and you're going to you know convince people that this is the way that they should train you're going into their headspace. You're not just training them in physical techniques. And so if you're going to go there, then you're going to have to start addressing the ethics of the philosophy. All you know, Any philosophical system is going to have some kind of ethical component. And clearly that was either not there or only given lip service. I'm kind of curious. Was there any ethical component to this whole system of animals and numbers and, and triangles and stuff? Yeah, sure. I mean, I... I phrase it as we were a values-based system mm -hmm. uh, or organization, which is why when um, some women came forward and, and they actually pointed the finger at one instructor in particular, and he was pretty much the highest ranking guy. Um, he wasn't technically at that point, but the highest ranking guy left in protest, which then made him the highest ranking guy. And I call him the bad actor in my book. I, okay. I was wondering if this was the guy we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. This is the bad actor. And, um, you know, again, it gets the the circumstances were nebulous because um, more than one woman came forward. Uh, but, you know, there were some women that said, OK, this was overt sexual assault. Um, there were other women that said, well, it was consensual, but we were both under the influence of alcohol. Uh, and then it's like, well, the I think legally in depending on states and stuff, I'm not an expert. But if you are intoxicated, you, you cannot give consent. Um, I but, don't know that that's a legal point at this point, but it certainly is contested. It's certainly something worth talking right. about. It's certainly a subject worth discussing. But then there were some women that said, well, I, I'm, I, we were intoxicated, but it was consensual. Mm -hmm. um, but then, I, you know, when I discussed this with, uh, with people and eventually with Concho, um, I said, you know, to what degree can you even give consent when this is the highest ranking person in the organization and you're not? I mean, that's exactly. a clear conflict. Like you have every incentive to not, you know, stir the boat because some of these women, when they brought this forward, like they were asked to leave the organization and they weren't actually expelled. 
or, or I don't know for sure, but I know in some cases it was like, Hey, I think it'd be best if you leave. You oh, know, wow. For your sake. Um, I'm not saying that you have to leave. I'm just saying, you know, it was that kind of stuff. Um, That's how it was dealt with. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he, we, he just, so what I didn't like, um, is that I feel like Concho, he looked at everything in the realm of the law and, and legal, you know, uh, litigation, things like that. And so he was always kind of making the point like, Hey, these are two consenting adults. They're over 18. It didn't happen at a Sebucon, you know, it didn't happen in the dojo or at a Sebucon event or something like that. Although some of them did happen at Sebucon events. Um, although, you know, it's not clear were they sponsored by Sebucon or were they just, we always hung out together. So everything was a Sebucon event. Um, but to me, none of those things really mattered because I was like, well, first of all, this isn't, we're not talking about what's legal. We're talking about what's permissible in your organization. Right. And you are a values-based organization. Okay. Like this isn't fucking Walmart, you know, at Walmart, you can sleep with whoever you want. Like it's, it's not a values-based organization. And actually even in Walmart, it's, you know, in, in any other organization, it's a general rule. Like, Hey, do not sleep with employees or people that you have a degree of power over. Um, so, you know, the person that was being accused of these things, the bad actor, you know, th this was a family man you know, married children. Um, so I was like, you know, who cares about the law? Like, let's just, let's just call this what it is. Like, this is someone that is absolutely breaking the values that our organization is purported to be based on. And he's got to go like, that seems like a no brainer to me. But the problem was this person ran a very successful school um, that I'm sure was generating a, a degree of income, probably a great degree of income. I don't know for sure. Um, but more importantly than that, I mean, he was sort of propped up as, as like the golden boy. And um, if, if you were to admit that perhaps, you know, basically you couldn't kick him out because that would be admitting that you had been deceived for quite some time because it had been happening for quite some time. Um, so Concho made a choice. I think he made the wrong choice and I told him as much. Um, and a lot of people left. And, and unfortunately, I could not leave because I had already left at that point. And I felt very uh, guilty about that because some people left in very public ways and they, they wrote letters and, and it was very kind of dramatic. And um, I never had the opportunity to do that. Um, and in some ways, maybe that was the genesis of the idea of the book was I just, I felt powerless and I was finding out, you know, more things from more people. And, um, and I was just like, you know, he's going to get away with all this. You know, he's going to, he's going to move to Japan and, and open his next school and, this story will never be told. And I, I never, you know, I don't want people to go to jail or anything like that. Um, but the story c should be told. Well, for sure. And if there are crimes being committed, then we want law enforcement looking into that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. You know, absolutely we do. I, I want to be clear. I mean, we're in a position, we're in a time of transition right now, you know, Me Too and, you know, the ongoing uh, activities of feminism and equal rights and, and civil rights and the, the battles that are being fought across the social, social spectrum on all of this uh, is basically, and they, and they talk about this in the left probably too much, but they, they can, they, you can tend to go a little bit nuts on this concept, but, but it is true that power dynamics matter uh, greatly. And when you're in a structured, formal situation like a school, like a workplace, like a government, 
where the structure of the of the system itself depends on the lines of authority between senior and junior members, and that these relationships be, you know, they're carefully defined relationships. There, there's a student, there's a master, right? There's there's teachers, there's these various intermediate levels. Um, there's just never been in our entire history as a species a time when you can introduce sex into that situation and have it come out well. You know, right. it just never works. And this has been a bugbear for leadership for centuries. How do you deal with this? You know, because people get together and they start getting randy, and then things start happening. And if you don't put some rules in place, and you can go too extreme on this too. And this is, and but at the same time, you have to question the motives of somebody who's not putting any control in on this, or who's trying actively to cover it up. You mentioned kicking people out of the school, or keeping it quiet, or you know, we're not going to enforce, we're not going to go with law enforcement on this, even though it's literally a criminal act. Right. You know, where you have very clear-cut situations like that, this is where the Catholic Church has fallen down over and over and over and over again. And it seems to be a point where every, almost every one of these destructive cults falls down on this yeah, area. It always, of the, it always ends with sex. Like that, I feel yeah. like that should be on the chart of the, the, the circle of life for cults, which is, um, that is the last step in dominance, you know? And, and right. when you are, especially when you're at the head of the organization and um, it just seems inevitable that eventually you would have to start sleeping with students and exerting con- that, that final measure of control you know martial arts is so interesting because it right off the bat it is structured uh you know like a cult starter kit um to the fact you know if you when you walk into uh i'm presuming an office of scientology on the first day um you know they're they're going to go out of their way to seem not culty right oh (laughs) way out of their way oh yeah yeah they're gonna seem as normal as possible um, but when you walk into a martial arts studio, uh, it's the opposite, which is they're like, here's your uniform. We all wear the same thing. Uh, you need to call this person senpai or sensei, but you need to call this person Kiyoshi Rensi. You should bow to him. Uh, you know, you need to bow to this statue at the front and you need to clap your hands twice at the end of class and clap them again at the end. And so much of that stuff would be completely unacceptable um, in if you went to Gold's Gym, you know. But in martial arts, we've romanticized it because of film and television, and we're very charmed by that kind of stuff. And uh, in a normal cult, you know, you would have to go very carefully conceal those aspects if they existed uh, for quite some time. But in martial arts, it's actually a selling point, which is like, oh wow, look at how you know. And they 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 cloak it under tradition, under uh, you know words like tradition and etiquette and things like that, but. As I learned history, I learned that, um, you know, martial arts in Japan prior to probably like judo, um, they were all very intertwined with with religious uh, Shintoism and and sort of family um, hierarchies. They were all primarily family-based martial arts. Uh, So, you know, a lot of the stuff that you do in Japanese martial arts, Aikido is a fantastic example. You know, the the founder of Aikido, uh, Weshiba, or they call him O-sensei, you know, he was part of sort of an obscure mystic Japanese religion, which was very much sort of based on that Buddhist Shintoism. He was a priest in that religion. I could be wrong on that part. But if he wasn't a priest, I mean, he was uh, he was pretty active in that. And you see he inserted that into 
the etiquette and the um, sort of the rituals that you saw in Aikido. So that if you're doing Aikido, you know, I'm not saying that you're practicing a religion, but you're definitely going through some motions that you might not be aware of what their origins are. And it's funny, I just, we were talking, I was talking with a, uh, a friend of mine and he said, um, yeah, I got these students that came in and they are, um, they were like Amish or something. They were part of some strict religion. And they said, hey, we're, we want to train here, but we're not comfortable bowing or calling, you know, people sensei or things like that. And uh, this instructor didn't know what to do. And he said, well, that's kind of like what you have to do here. And, um, and I said, well, I get it because I mean, like bowing to someone like that, that does come from Buddhism. That's why we don't bow to people in the West for the most part. Um, I said, so, you know, they, you kind of are practicing a religion when you're doing some of these old martial arts, if you see it that way, most people don't. Um, so I don't want to, but like in, you know, Kancho, we found out years later, he was a priest in some obscure Japanese religion. I think it was called the Mikio uh, branch of Buddhism. And, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that we did in the beginning and end of class, the phrases that we used, a lot of that was actually reflections of Mikio, which was a very weird mystic, you know, religion where they worshiped kind of a warrior god. Um, you know, Kancho at some point, he he started pushing this narrative that he was a reincarnated samurai. Um, you know, all, all sorts of stuff that you look back and you're like, yeah, maybe we were like, being more religious than we realized you know well you're not far off on that and it's and you're not alone in it either because every single adherent of tm is following a religious ritual mm. right every single person is doing transcendental meditation and most of them have are clueless about it most especially westerners right they they get involved in this they get their meditation word and they have this whole little ritual that they do and they have no idea that that ritual that they're doing is actually a religious ritual to to acknowledge the the um, divinity of the of the deity that they are actually worshiping uh, in the Hindu uh, religion or faith, um, if I'm remembering that right, and that's that's TM, which a ton of Westerners swear by and think has nothing to do with religion. Has uh, everything to do with religion, you know? Right. It, exactly the way you're talking about, right? So. So there's there's a matter of etymology or or sourcing, right? Things can go back to a religious source without necessarily having to be religious now, and maybe some people might see it that way. But it's a very good point to make because if you don't know what you're doing, it doesn't mean that you're not doing it. You are still doing it. <laughs> you're just, you're sort of, you're practicing your religion if even if you don't know you are. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's weird. It's you know because you haven't assigned a value to it. Um, you know, are you practicing a religion unconsciously? I don't know. That's a, that's sort of a deep question, but the, I guess a larger point is, is that if you're practicing a religion totally unconsciously and without assigning a value, it's very easy for then someone to come in and power that up. And well, that's uh, what, yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I right. mean. As I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be mystical here or, or, or tell people they're doing something they're not doing. I, I, I mean that, that you can use this to advantage yeah, absolutely. You know, and yeah. uh, I, um, boy, that's a deep subject. Actually, going in and going down that little rabbit hole, but I don't. I, I think we'll. I think we'll pull back on that one, because um, there's a lot of there. There could be a lot of controversy on that too. Um, but let's get. Let's talk about a couple of the mechanisms of the group you were involved in, in terms of cult mechanisms. 
Because they okay. did exist, and you do describe them in your book, right? For example, um, we've talked about here, to a degree, we've sort of had it in the background a little bit, the financial a- financial aspect of this. Yes. We talked about it with the Uchu, with the, with the student guys. Right? Yeah. I, I'm horrible at this, this language stuff, fine. so... But uh, but we, so we talked about it with that. But then we also have this other thing, the belt machine, which you pointed out to me. And I did read up on that uh, in your book, and I was fascinated by it because it's a system that is just begging for abuse. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. So yeah. you want to describe that whole belt machine process? Because I think that speaks a bit to, you know – they're saying you're doing something, and then there's what you're really doing. Right. And I th- and I think this is a good example of showing the difference between those two things with your group. Yeah. So uh, to lay the table for maybe people that don't under uh, understand in in a traditional martial arts economic model, you are monetizing attendance, just like a gym. You know, you pay a fee, and and as long as you're you're up on your payments, you're allowed to use the facilities and go to unlimited classes or three classes a week or something like that. In SebuCon, we did monetize attendance, but we kept our fees reasonable. I think it was $85 a month, uh, which was even at that time, you know, like 150 is more what the standard is now. But in addition to that, we monetize progression in the system. And that is something that in most schools, when you are promoted one rank to another, you're typically not charged a fee or you're charged a very modest fee to cover the cost of the physical belt that he had to buy in bulk, your instructor, or she had to buy in bulk. So in SebuCon, we monetize progression. Every belt costs money, and it costs progressively more money. I, uh, you know, the fees have changed over the years. My very first belt, which was white to yellow, was $35. Anyone can pay that. But then uh, my first black belt, which I received nine months after I started training, which I'll circle back to that, uh, was I think probably $250. And then everyone went up incrementally. When I got my seventh degree black belt, I think it was seven or $800. And then after that, when we created more belts, uh, you know, we were getting bumping up against a thousand dollars. And I know that's, and that was money we didn't have. I mean, like I said, we were primarily young people and even the Uchideshi had to pay, I believe, those belt fees or some version of it on top of their huge fees they were already paying. And because we tied in progression with sort of your personal growth and enlightenment, and because uh, our belt promotion ceremonies were such euphoric events, you know, we were highly motivated to get promoted. So it creates this big, it created a conflict, which is that you want to have quality control over your students. If someone's going to get a black belt, you would like to think they have some sort of degree of skill that is matching with what you think a black belt should be. But at the same time, if someone says, well, you know, how long does it take to get a black belt? Well, we want everyone to wait uh, at least a year, which because we think that that's how long it takes to acquire those kinds of skills. And that's what we did. It was at least a year and a year in, almost any other organization is absurdly short. That's what I thought. I thought that sounded crazy to me a year for a black belt. Yeah. So we would say, you know, you have to wait one year. Um, And then after that, you should wait another year and another year. So, so, you know, one year between each. And, 
But then maybe someone comes along and says, well, gee, I'd really like to get it sooner. Uh, you know, I could pay you $700. They, well, you know, I guess you could do some private lessons. Uh, or, you know, we have this, this supercharged program called the Uchideshi program. Maybe you could do that. Uchideshi, they could get their black belt in half the time. So they could do it in six months. Uh, Man. And man. So they pay the fees. And then they <laughs> this is so Scientology, fees. man. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. Especially because every level is progressively more and more money, too. More social so status. Exactly. The social right. status was really big. Um, yep. and, and at a certain point, you could start teaching yourself, teaching classes, teaching private lessons, which you could make some money from, but it was a very small amount compared to, um, you know, how much you had to give a concho. You could do, start teaching seminars, open your own school, things like that. Take an instructor course, which was pretty expensive um, so that you could become a certified instructor. And uh, the, the absolute maddest it got was at one point we did sort of an experiment and we got a group of seven students or maybe it was five and we promoted them from zero martial arts training to black belt in 21 days. That was the Dragon Island thing. That was the Dragon Island, which was this whole crazy idea for this reality <laughs> show that we had. It was just the height of our delusion. Um, and, you know, we thought we were going to film this reality show and pitch it to, to television networks. And it was just an unmitigated disaster. And uh, as far as like the, the logistics of it, you know, we were so unorganized and the people running it were just not the right people. And, and um, we, we totally drug those five people across the finish line. I mean, it was, it was, it was the physical version of cramming for a test. Like they could do the motions but they, they could not improvise. They, they didn't really know what to do if things didn't go according to plan. And if anything, it was, a, it was an experiment that proved that it was not possible uh, to promote someone that fast. Um, and all, almost all of them quit. I don't think any of them kept training. Um, maybe one or two kept for maybe another year, but they all quit. So, so then you have this mechanism that you're promoting students very fast because um, students being promoted generates income, it, it makes it a little harder to instill really good quality control because you're literally, you know, people are trying to give you money and, and it's hard to say no to that. So that was one problem is that we were progressing really rapidly through ranks. Um, I got my first black belt in nine months, uh, which was like an exception made for me because I did take private lessons every month, which I paid for each private lesson in addition to my monthly fees, in addition to the black belt fee. And then after that, I got one black belt every year for seven years until I was the highest ranking uh, that, that could happen. And seventh degree black belt in seventh degree black belt. Okay. Um, and then I got two other black belts in different martial arts that Contro also taught. So I, I thought I was cross training, but I, I kind of wasn't because I was just trained under him anyways. Um, so if you think about it, Originally, when Concho designs the, the belt system, he kind of thought, okay, it should take you a long time to go from new student to seventh degree black belt. And maybe I want to go faster than other traditional martial arts, but like it still should take, you know, it, 10 years is, is a reasonable time. Um, but when an Uchideshi came in there, and remember, Uchideshi was supposed to only be one year. But what happened was people started being Uchideshi for like three, four years. So in a three, four year period, they're eligible to get promoted every six months, which means in like four and a half years, they had burned through the entire system. There was no more belts for them to get. Right. And 
at a certain point when we really hit the gas and we had a lot of students, we had a lot of Uchideshi, suddenly you're looking around and you were surrounded by really, really high ranking black belts. And we ran out of runway, which is that uh, we were promoting students faster than we could acquire new ones. And then if you think about it, you know, me as a student, if, if you monetize me, I'm paying you fees at schedule increments. Every, every year I get a black belt and that's a guaranteed, you know, two to $700 in your bank. But after I become a seventh Don, my value has dropped to zero. I'm not going to get promoted anymore. So I'm kind of financially worthless. Um, and then you, you have to find something else for me to do because that was what was happening with all of us. We were all becoming seventh Don's and, and really, in theory, there should only ever be like a, a fairly small number of seventh dons. It should be like a pyramid, you know? But the pyramid was like flipped upside down where actually there were, there were very few like white and yellow belts. And there were a ton of seventh, sixth, and fifth dons. And uh, so we had to, that was the belt machine, which was the students were actually, I think, surprising Concho with how ravenous they were about training. You know, I don't think Concho ever anticipated that people would be Uchideshi for so long. And I think in some level he realized it wasn't good. But again, hey, you want to pay me 500 bucks a month for another year? Yeah, let's renew the contract. Uh, so then we started trying to come up with ways to continue to monetize students, which, um, you know, we would make them do the, we would, yeah, we would invite them to do the instructor course even though we had no classes for them to teach at the headquarters. So, you know, in the beginning it was like, okay, one guy teaches three days a week, the other guy teaches three days a week or two days a week. But then it became like, okay, like you teach every other Wednesday once a month uh, because, you know, all the slots are taken by different people. Again, like these people weren't skilled enough to go open their own businesses per se. So we're, we're trying to herd them through the instructor curriculum, even though there's really nowhere for them to teach um we're trying to get them to continue to be uchideshi and then we actually just created new belt levels we we created uh, eighth ninth and tenth don and those belt levels were technically always there i remember when i first started it's like well we have eighth ninth and tenth dons but no one's ever attained them yet because we, the system was still in its middle ages at that point um and the theory was like those belt levels are only for students that own their schools and have x number of students but I think eventually Concho, he was, he was like the guy like trying to hold the door shut, you know, and, and they're just banging on the other side. And eventually he was like, all right, you can be an eighth Don, you can be a ninth Don. So we had people that didn't own schools being eighth, ninth and 10th Dons. Um, and, and it just swallowed us up because when you're in a mindset of progression, which we programmed our students to always be going for the next bell level. It was not a passive thing at all. Like the day you show up and say, <laughs> paper that says, here's your promotion requirements. And then like, literally it was a tradition, like the day you get promoted, even to black belt or second degree black belt or whatever, someone gives you your requirements for the next level before you leave. Um, right. so, so, so the whole culture was a progress culture. A, a, yeah. a, you must be continuing to move or there's actually kind of something wrong with you. Yeah. And of course, you know, we were really good at double speak. So, so we would say the exact opposite. We'd say, Oh, the belt doesn't matter. It's not about the belt at all. 
you know, but, but really, you know, if you look at our actions, like you said, um, it, the belt was the only thing that mattered. And it got to a point where, you know, if you, if for four years or five years, you've had a progression of it's always about the next thing. And then suddenly there's nothing else. Like people didn't know what to do. And you had people, we called it the Nanadon blues. Um, Nanadon is the Japanese word for seventh degree black belt. Um, so the Nanadon <laughs> blues was like this depression that set in, which is, I don't matter. And, and it felt like, I don't know if this was real or perceived, but it felt like Concho would kind of stop paying attention to you because there was just nothing left to, for you to do. And, and he's going to turn his attention to love the young up and comers that, you know, there's, there's thousands and thousands of dollars that they can contribute. And I don't know if he, if he looked at, I'm not saying that he looked at everyone as a dollar sign. Um, but I am saying that, you know, Concho, whether he wanted to or not, like he could not put the brakes on because at that point, you know, he had two kids. He had a nice house in the seaside highlands. He drove a Mercedes. He went to Japan two, three times a year. His wife was from Japan, expensive trips. And it's like, this was his source of income. Like he couldn't turn the hose off. You know, he had, he had bills to pay just like everyone else. I don't imagine that this was a whole lot different than L. Ron Hubbard. And I, I would like to tell you now, and, and the audience as well, an analogy as to how David Miscavige in Scientology solved the exact same problem you ran into in your school. Uh, and I'll use, the, I'll, I'll use uh, the terms of your school to describe what David Miscavige did with Scientology. Imagine your bad actor guy took over the school, right? And, and Concho disappears or goes off or whatever or dies. Uh, that's Scientology, right? The bad actor took over. And, uh, and it's not like the, the, the first guy was that great, but the second guy is even worse huh. in different ways. But they're both, they're both equally as horrible, but just in different ways. Um, so the bad actor then tells all the students, okay, we've got, you know, we've got this highest level and all of this. Uh, well, here's what, here's, what, here's what the real deal is. I'm actually sending all you guys back down to your blue belts or your white belts. Because you didn't actually get it. You only thought you did. Whoa. And I'm actually going to charge you to go back up the levels again because you didn't get it right as Concho actually intended for you to get it. Uh... Right? This is the problem, right? Is you, you've attained this level, but you are not only out of stuff to do, which is the exact problem David Miscavige ran into with Scientologists, because there's only so much levels of the of the yeah. bridge that Scientologists can do, and they get to OT8, and they, you want to talk about the blues, man? It is noteworthy how many people who get to the highest level OT8 or OT7 in Scientology commit suicide wow. or get cancer. It's weird. It's been noted. They're old. I mean, I I don't know that the cancer thing is statistically significant, right? But the suicides are. And um, and I wouldn't be surprised if it, if there was a statistically greater amount of cancer patients also, because there is or there can be with some of these. And again, don't misinterpret me. Don't don't think I'm talking in black and white terms right now. That you know everything is context specific. But there are psychosomatic factors that can contribute to a cancer to certain kinds of cancer or cancer conditions. Yeah, yeah I think that's I, pretty well. Yeah, like, I'm talking about stress. I'm talking about depression. I'm talking about like, like your body responds to your mental states because they're actually your mental states are actually 
in the end of the day, physiological states too. Yeah. So it, it all kind of goes together, you know, um, is, is all I'm really sort of asserting there. And you're absolutely right. There are studies that back this up. So that was how David Miscavige solved that problem. And I thought it might be interesting to put it in those terms of, of how your school works. Because as you were describing all that, I was thinking, uh, you know, as crazy as that system is that he set up with the belt machine, and as, and as good as you did breaking it, seeing what that was and how that was a point of downfall for the organization, because he created his own monster. And he, and he probably did. It was probably an unintended consequence, like you said. He, he yeah, and he just found himself trapped by his own system because what's the one thing a cult leader cannot admit to that he was wrong? Mm. Cannot do it, right? And you set up a, a student master situation, and it even more reinforces that because we have these crazy expectations that masters or senseis or teachers can ever be wrong. And it's the most stupid, arbitrary idea that we've ever come across as human beings. But we all run it on our teachers. You yeah, know? and that's something I, I do write some some words in the book. Um, sort of, I, I felt, uh, I don't know if pity is the correct word. Um, empathy is a word maybe I like more. Or sympathy. Mm -hmm. sympathy. Empathy means you have experienced it. Sympathy means you haven't experienced it, but you can understand. Anyways, um, <laughs> I felt sympathy because over the years, I saw Concho go from um, a well-respected man to like a deity or some sort of pseudo deity. And a lot of that came with the out-of-towners because, you know, they were traveling. They had heard, they'd only interacted with Concho through stories of their instructor who of course wants to make it seem like he trained under the most amazing guy possible. Right. So uh, that's when it really started to happen. And over the years, I feel like I saw a toll that it took on him as a man, which was that he always had to be on and people were looking to him to solve their problems, to say something deep and uh, you know, something that they would tell their other students or their kids about. And that was something that I felt like he, in some ways he kind of dreaded. I remember one night, like he went to the movies with us and we saw a, some stupid movie in the, in the thing. And I remember like, he was just like so excited. Um, and I think it was just like, Oh man, I can go just to be a person, you know? And even then he couldn't really, because we just, we adored him, you know, but that is the element that we as the students create, which was, we forced greatness on him, whether he wanted it or not. And I'm not saying he didn't step up to the plate because he absolutely did. But at the same time, like there was a part of us that we craved this, you know, the father that we never had kind of a thing. We always joke that there was a lot of students at the top that, that coincidentally didn't seem to have relationships with their own fathers. Um, and so we always joked about daddy issues and all that stuff. But, um, you know, I mean, I think there was this, one guy that he was crying at his promotion and uh and he's like he said concho I, I feel like you're you're the father you know you've been like a father figure to me and the guy that said that his dad was in the audience <laughs> oh like, burn oh. Like, oh. what a burn yeah totally man oh okay well moving right along um so that's the codependency you know yeah like, well, exactly I'm so glad yeah. you brought that up. It, it, it's, it's, I was going to, because I was going to make that point, and I'm so glad you did. 
it's it's a vitally important point that you know we look at the cult leaders as the nefarious bad guys and often they are okay i'm not giving anybody a pass here you take advantage of people you get what you deserve but um but it is a codependent relationship. There is zero question about that. I, I, in every single one of these groups I've looked at, over all the years I've looked at it, and all of the professionals I've talked to about this, psychologists, you know, psychiatrists, sociologists, cult experts, every one of them agrees. The followers are putting as much into this stuff as the, as the leader is. Because it has to work that way. You can't be a flyby cult follower. You can't be a casual, passive cult follower. It doesn't work that way. Right. You know, you have to go all in. And that's the nature of the beast, you know. And when you do, well, then there are unintended consequences to that. And and you didn't see it coming. It's not necessarily your fault. But at the same time, you are the one who did it. I remember uh, when our we had our 21st birthday celebration, which was obviously with the numbers, that was a big, big deal to us. And that was, uh, if there's, it's close to a moment of clarity, that was it. Um, and it, what, it was this big, we rented a hotel um, or the, the conference center in the hotel and we had big all day training. And then the evening we had a dinner, we all got dressed up. There was literally a red carpet and the, um, the background with the Sabucon logos like movie stars do. We took pictures, there was a professional photographer or, or we borrowed some student that had a nice camera. Uh, and we were a little cheap. Like it was always, we were always yeah. like bumming. Like all the construction work in the dojo was done by students, you know, basically unpaid. Um, there's like no insurance on the building, which I think is like illegal or something, as far as I know. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and what was weird about that night was, um, you know, Concho came in the room. He had a white tuxedo on with the uh, the tails on it, and white shoes, the whole thing. I mean, it was. His moment, he was very happy. You know, he'd been talking about the 21st birthday for a long, long time. Right. And um, and then we all were like giving speeches. And it was just these, um, it, was, it was such a weird moment, Chris. It was like, we were all taking turns giving these long elaborate professions of faith and loyalty. And it was, it was total virtue signaling and everyone had to be bigger than the last. People were crying. And what made that, in some ways it was normal, we did stuff like that a lot, but what made it real to me was all of our like spouses and significant others were there, girlfriends, boyfriends, and they were freaked the fuck out. I remember looking at Sarah, my wife, and she she was just like, and it, it suddenly clicked for me. I was like, this is really uncomfortable for them. Like they recognize this is not normal. Like these professions of faith that we're doing and, um, and I left like, oh, and I went to the bar to get a drink. I was like, I need a drink. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was listening to these bartenders and they, they didn't, you know, I was like coming up and I could kind of overhear them and they're just like, so it's a cult. And the guy was like, no, I think they do like martial arts. And the guy was like, oh no, like my cousin's in a cult and this is a cult. <laughs> yep. And then, and then, you know, I came up and they're just like polishing those. Yeah. 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 And I order a drink and they're just like, they're giving me the drink like they give a hostage, you know, uh, something. They're just like, here's your drink. Please go away. Don't talk to me about your weird cult thing. And then then it kind of hit me. I was like, oh, wow. Like, this is how normal people react to what we've become. And uh, another thing that was really weird about that night was, 
you talked about the mechanisms of control. One of our other mechanisms was like this really long complex jargon that we had developed and we had this sort of coded language to the point where it actually was starting to work against us. Like it was hard to have normal conversations because we had to, we had been kind of programmed to insert all these buzzwords. I talked about the 21 concepts. Well, those were 21 words that we just had to insert in everything and the awareness assessment action, all that. So like we, um, it was very Orwellian in the sense that, you know, in like 1984, Orwell makes the point that uh, in order to control the population, they actually limit their vocabulary so that they they cannot form. It's hard for them to um, to put words to their thoughts because they don't have the words to do it. Um, and in some ways, I felt like that was kind of what happened to us. I remember the last time I talked to Concho, he was just like a raving madman, you know, like um, he and I told him, I was like, I, I was like, can you not talk like that for like two seconds? because I, I don't even know what you're saying, literally. You're just, you're just stringing together buzzwords through sentences and I, I can't understand you. And by that point, I'd been away from Sabicon for a year or so. So I, I was just like, it was coming back. I was like, wow, is this what I sounded like, you know? Loaded language, man. It is probably one of the most crucial control elements of a group. You know, it's, it's a way we use it. Loaded language is, language is important because we need specialized words to describe specialized concepts. So every single sub-specialized group ends up with their own language. But, the, but what I'm curious about, and I think you've described it pretty well, but let me ask you this. Um, in addition to what you just said, is there anything more about how that language was used in your group to create an us versus them mentality? Yeah. Um, in fact, I think we even had sort of words for us versus them. Like we joked about normies. Like yes. Normies yes. Um, so I talked about this um, house that we got and it was a large apartment upstairs. We called it the Uchi, the Uchi house because all the Uchi Deshi could live there. Um, although other people started living there because eventually there wasn't enough people to pay rent and when stuff started collapsing. But um, what we would have these huge parties there raging parties i mean you know just like a college party basically and it would always be when the out-of-towners came because we would have we train all day and then at night we'd go celebrate and in a weird way like some of my favorite memories are of those times because they were really fun but one thing that happened was i would try to bring sarah there and at that time we weren't married we were dating um and she would go and i would sort of drag her there and she knew you know, all the people in Sebukon, but what she told me one time, she's like, I just can't go to those things. I was like, what do you mean? It's great. So-and-so's there and stuff. And she's like, she said, you, I, one, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Like, and I'm not saying, you know, I don't understand that. I'm saying literally like you're using sort of vocabulary and phrases that, that you understand what they mean. I don't understand what they mean. And, uh, and then two, like, we just had to talk about martial arts. That was sort of our commonality. And I remember talking to one of my best friends who was also married and uh, he said, Oh yeah, my wife can't come either. You know, it's just, it's too much for her. We end up doing martial arts on the floor. Uh, so as far as the jargon, you know, a lot of it was we would say things to each other that had a sort of coded meaning or a coded language. Some of that was just, we spoke a lot of Japanese. Um, and, and it was actually just more like Japanese vocabulary. We didn't, none of us really understood Japanese language. I think we thought we did, you know, cause everyone wants to pretend they know another language. Uh, <laughs> you know, 
so part of that was we would just say the Japanese to each other. And, and then some of that extended to the titles. All the titles were in Japanese. So, you know, you call someone senpai or renshi in the dojo, and then it just becomes kind of fun to call them that outside the dojo. But then, you know, it, it gets taken too far. And I'm in CVS trying to get a bottle of wine for something unrelated. And I see, you know, a student or two there and they're like bowing to me. They're, oh, good evening, Renshi. And it's like, it's fucking CVS, you know, and, and there's people looking, uh, you know, at us like, what's going on over there? And that's when it became like a little bit harder to deal with the outside world. And then the Dragon Island thing was a big part of that too, which was, you know, we, we filmed Dragon Island supposed to be this whole reality show and we started marketing it on uh, social media we made a trailer and um our goal was to like get enough attention where maybe we could reshoot it a second time and this was like a proof of concept and maybe we could talk to a network or something about it um but when we went on facebook you know we thought it was really cool and people were going to be blown away but the reaction was just overwhelmingly negative and i think it shocked some of us and and it made us retreat into our bubble and we started feeling like oh you know we can't share what we do we have to be careful when we share what we do with the outside world and then our recruitment sort of changed where it was like we're not just looking for students like we're looking for the right kind of people right there it is yeah. there it is that's right those both of those last two things you said are the are the cherry on top of it because that's when it is truly us versus them right not just us and them mm. right and us versus them is the is the crucial part and that enters in exactly where you just said that was i could not have conceived of a better answer because it was exactly the progression you know you're doing this group you're totally into it it's totally amazing everybody loves it this is the best thing since sliced bread you show it to the outside world and they all go, you guys are out of your minds. That's right. crazy talk. What are you talking about? Black belts in six months. Get the, you know, get out of here. Yeah. And your response is not, holy cow, you're right. What am I involved in? That's hardly anybody's response. Most people are going to double down. In a weird way, like we knew who the right kind of person was. And it was the, it was the Eric Hoffer true believer, which was, okay, like, and we never explicitly said this you know but there was this unsaid thing that okay we're looking for someone young you know early 20s maybe they have a job maybe they're just kind of working part-time a little bit lost you know looking for you know maybe not as many friends as they would like and someone might come in the dojo and they wouldn't fit the profile and we would you know we wouldn't run them out of there but like we just knew we're like you're not the right person that's right that's right. You know, That's oh, exactly you're married it. Married with kids and you're a lawyer. Yeah, I don't know. You seem, you know, like like you got a lot of stuff going on. Maybe this isn't. <laughs> yeah, at first maybe it might not even be fully conscious at first, but it's just yeah. this pushback against not not us. You're not us. We yeah. don't want you here. You know. And to be fair, we even do that in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu sometimes. You know, like oh, every group does. You know, it's that's just, just a matter of degree. Profiling. profiling is human nature. That's right. Um, that's right. We're going to categorize no matter what. Yes. Yeah. But the exclusionary categorizing and the pushback 
and the resistance to other thinking and the this is where the echo this is where the echo chamber starts being created this is where the bubble world starts being created it's all part of the of the picture so i'm i'm glad we could highlight that that pit i'm curious um as a as a as a um example of this did anybody ever come to your school who had been formally trained to a black belt degree or to a high degree in another school and then came in and said, hey, what do you guys got to teach me? And what yes. happened with them? Yeah, so we did not like those people. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> and and again, like we were masters of doublespeak. So, so we would say the exact opposite. We'd say, oh, this is great. And we would kind of flatter them. Oh, your experience is going to be so useful for helping you learn Seibukan. Um, but, you know, I mean, really in a very subtle way from day one, it was just like, cool. So everything, you know, is wrong. Uh, you know. <laughs> yep. And, and we had some, you know, it was a, it was a big problem, honestly, because especially if you came from a school where you did resist during training, you know, we, we could not handle that. And there were a couple times where someone would come from another school and they'd be training and maybe things got a little heated and suddenly they would flip a switch and they'd whoop our instructor's ass, you know? And it was like, get this under control right away. It's, it's you know, that this cannot happen, you know? And then you got to take them aside and be like, oh, we actually do no challenge, no resistance, no injury here. Because if that instructor wanted to, you know, he could have fucking killed you, you know? So, right. so you're lucky, you know, go up. But, but really, you know, he was holding back a lot in that moment where, you know, you threw him through, you know, halfway across. <laughs> because you know or you get kids that you know we had a guy come and he wrestled in in college and uh you know division two wrestler or something like that and if you ever train with a wrestler those guys they are 100 percent resisting and they literally <laughs> they are programmed you can't make them be passive if you want i mean it's just it's a part of their training they're very difficult to deal with uh even now as a as a as a jujitsu specialist um and, you know, that would be an example of a guy that as soon as he came in, he's like, yeah, I wrestled in high school. I wrestled in college. I was really good. We would basically be like, we can't let this guy train here because, um, and, and, you know, and we, we had this subtle process of kind of excluding them and driving them out um, because they would just make us look bad, you know, because they knew, they knew what was up. Exactly. Uh, I, did it ever occur to you at the time Harkening back to when you were look, when you were talking about those exact guys in there making and, and you were pushing back against them, do you see it now or or was it conscious then? It was conscious then. Okay. Because um, just for me personally, like my ego felt threatened by them, uh, and I was you know a dirty little secret is. Until I started studying, I started studying Gracie Jiu-Jitsu later when I was um, like a fifth degree black belt. But up until that time, I never, ever felt confident in my skills and ability to defend myself ever. Wow. And what would happen is, and, and, and I just knew that in my, in my mind. Um, and in some ways, I was kind of open with it because that's why I went and cross-trained. Um, mm-hmm. I remember uh, situations just like I just described. Someone came in the dojo and gave me a little bit of resistance or pushback, and I felt like something was wrong. And um, 
And all those things had were planting seeds of doubt right away. And I remember I went and trained with a buddy that he um, he had left. He'd gone to Los Angeles. He started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He did it for like six months. And um, we used to train together. So he came back into town and I was like, hey, let's go to this place. Um, you know, it's like a grassy uh, lawn or something. And, and we laid some mats down and uh, we started training. And we used to train in like very kind of controlled, rehearsed ways. But he had sort of changed his methodology. And uh, he just tackled me to the ground and held me down. And I, there was just nothing I could do. And I was just, and, and we did it like three times over 45 minutes. And it was just the same result. I mean, it, so it, it wasn't a fluke in my mind. I couldn't, I couldn't explain it away. I was like, well, we tried it multiple times. Like I tried different things. I just had nothing. And, uh, and yeah, I remember driving home being like, oh shit. You know, like I'm at that point, I was like a third, fourth degree black belt. I was like that, that shouldn't have happened. Right. And then I went and talked to my teachers and, um, you know, they just, they said exactly what you said. They said, oh, well, you just, um, you know, did you, maybe you weren't using your center enough. They said very vague kind of generic things that I'd be like, yeah, you're right. Maybe I didn't use my center. (laughs) (laughs) Right. There you go. Say that, and there's and there's another. I love this. This is another great example of how the language, right? Thought stopping cliche. Okay, good. That okay. that that explains it enough that the cognitive dissonance has died down, and I can now continue. Would you say a thought stopping cliche? Yes, a I like st- that. Yes, a thought stopping yeah. cliche. They are common. Yeah. They are all over the place, and uh, we use them all the time. Uh, and cults specialize in their use. And if you can, you know, these thought-stopping mechanisms, these labels that get used, they just shut down thinking. And that was a big thing that kind of converted me into an enemy, which was I started cross-training because, um, you know, I knew I was like, there's got to be something else. And I started cross-training. I didn't tell Concho. He probably would not have been happy. He wouldn't have stopped me, but um, he wouldn't have been happy. And um, I started really getting into it to the point where I was becoming a true believer for a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school, you know, and that's where I stepped back and I was like, okay, like there's something about me and my experiences and my personality that like I'm drawn to, you know, um, obsession. I have, you know, obsession is like a, 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 I don't want to say a character flaw, but yeah, it's like a character flaw that I have. And it's worked to my benefit in many times, you know, I learned through obsession. Um, So after well, you aren't training. you aren't alone in that, by the way. Just so you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, I know. There, I mean, there's a lot of people who just go full immersion, and there's yeah. and and again, nothing wrong with that. It's it's when you get taken advantage of that 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 things go south. You know. Exactly. So when I I did a lot of intensive training at the Gracie Jiu Jitsu, so I had been trained by Concho. Hey, whoever you train with, you go to the top of the ladder. You train with the best guy in the world, which was good advice, actually. Um, so I went to Torrance, California, and I trained under like the uh, the the Gracie family, the the branch of the family that created the UFC. Yep. Um, and uh, I would travel. I didn't go live there. I would drive from Monterey to Los Angeles. Talk about obsession, you know. And I, would, I was <laughs> yeah. lessons. I mean, I was in it, and I I became a true believer for their their style of Gracie Jiu Jitsu, um, which was not as healthy, but but I got over that later. 
And then I started coming back to SebuCon and I started doing some of that shit. And right away the tables turned and it was like, it was like, Louis that guy now, you know, like he's the guy that is, you know, not just resisting. I wasn't really resisting in training. I wasn't doing that. But what I would do is like, there was times where, and this was my ego too, because I was, uh, there was part of me that I was resentful of the Uchideshi and that I had never been an Uchideshi. So, so I kind of had my own ax to grind there, but then I was like, Oh, well now I'm studying this martial art that none of them know. And it actually works way better. Uh, so I started, you know, um, I just couldn't help myself. There was times where I'd be like, well, you know, actually there might be a better way to do that here. Let me show you what it is. And that got me in some trouble real quick. And, uh, and then from then on, I just couldn't go back. It was like, Louis kind of an enemy now. Like he's not really, you know, we still need to be nice to him. He's still a nonadon. Um, and there were some people, the tricky thing was a lot of the students were genuinely curious about what I, the skills I had learned because they saw, they're like, Oh, Louis, like he's got a whole new toolbox. He's pretty effective at some of this stuff now. Um, so, you know, then some people would be like, they, they want to learn more. And, and maybe after class, hey, show me that thing that you were talking about or that thing that you did. But then I remember one day I was showing a guy something, um, some sort of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu move. And one of the, the actually was the bad actor. Ah. He, saw me, he saw me doing it and it was his student I was teaching and he freaked out. And, um, and from that day on, it was like, I was, I had the mark on me, man. And, and, uh, and I just knew, I was like, it's time for me to go. I said, if, if, if I stay here, you know, bad things are going to happen. Like, don't leave in anger. Like you, you obviously have some sort of resentment. Um, I, I was becoming a man at that point. I had gotten married. I had a real job and a career with functional people around me to kind of see as a model, like, oh, there's really good, successful people that don't do Sabucon. And, um, and I was like, it's time you, you need to start transitioning out because you're going to keep getting better at Grace Jiu Jitsu. You're going to, you know, you're going to start training more in that. And, um, you're not going to be able to help yourself. You're not going to be able to keep it under wraps. You know, I just didn't have that, um, self-control at that time. And I still don't, that's why I can't, even though part of me would love to go do some Aikido or something one of these days, it's like, once you become a meat eater, it's hard to go back, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. I, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I, um, I'll just share this real fast and I have a couple more questions for you. Um, I tried to go learn Aikido and oh. here, here in Denver and I went to a couple places, a couple studios to try and, you know, I've got the background that I have, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with, uh, and, I, and I'm not saying that I walked in there and went, oh my God, this place is a cult. I, I'm not saying that. Um, but what did happen was I went in and there was all the bowing and the scraping and the ritual and all of that. And I left because, um, well, at the time, what I looked at was I said, uh, all this ritual seems to be more important to them than actually teaching the skill that I'm trying, that I'm here to learn. Right. And I actually even wrote them about it. I said, look, you got all this, you know, bowing and this and that and all this ritual but, but when do I learn how to, you know, stand <laughs> or or fall or this kind of thing? I mean, they, they sort of kind of got into this, but it was uh, it was very, 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 very frustrating. And uh, and so I, I, I hit the eject button on that. And I'm kind of glad I did because I think everything we've been talking about here is sort of where the, all that was going. Um, 
was that was that um, you said there was a series of uh, of seed planting or doubt creating over a period of time. Um, what do you think in hindsight, looking at your entire seven year experience, right? Which I which I I don't doubt. You know, many many people have have had of, of going in, going out. But, you know, I think we've described here that there was more going on than just you were got into a thing, got really gung-ho about it, then got a little disaffected and then left. There was There's more to this than just you and your part in this. In hindsight now, is there anything you could offer as to what you could have seen or looked into at the beginning that might have been a red flag now that you know it's hard because i feel like i was so young i just wasn't you know i mean of course there was there were a lot of warning signs about the money um you know being made to feel guilty or ostracized when you didn't take certain opportunities um but at the same time it's like i i that's why they target younger people because they're just not in a position to know that yet um, you know, looking back, like one of the warning signs that I think about more now was that, um, the, the purpose of all the training from the students was to then get the students to further serve the organization as opposed to serve their themselves and advance in their own lives. And I remember, um, you know, when people would tell or when I would tell Concho like hey I, I got hired I, I graduated college and I was like I got a good job you know and um, you know there was this feeling of like that's great you know I hope it doesn't affect your training you know I hope you can right. still keep doing that and and it was like your success was kind of seen as maybe like a, a threat um, or my cross training was maybe seen as a threat uh, but Honestly, like the people, I, I don't, I don't blame myself. I, I mean, for going through this because I, I really was like, I was an idiot, you know, like this is, this is how people learn. Um, but there were other people that were older that were training, you know, and we got much younger over time, but there was a period of time where there were a lot of older uh, men that were mentors to me that were in the system and I am a little harder on them. I'm like, how did you, you know, how this, this worked on me. How did it work on you? You know, like you've been around the block. Um, but actually a lot of the older men were kind of disaffected too. Uh, you know, and, and there's people have been talking about this lately that in, in the United States, there's sort of a crisis among older men uh, that are maybe a little bit disaffected and you know they they have higher risks of, of suicide or gun violence or things like that. Maybe there was a little bit of that happening that we were capturing that sort of profile of a of a man. But yeah, some of the older guys. I remember uh, there was one older guy. His name was Paul. Probably shouldn't say his name, but there's you know there's a million. Paul Whatever his name is, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that one. <laughs> he told me one night we went and ate after just me and him. And we were talking about stuff and I said something about, oh, isn't Concho so great? And he said, well, he said, hey, I love this place. He said, but I'm definitely not in the cult of Concho. And I never forgot that. And 
the way he just like he blew it off very casually and i see i see him in hindsight as he was a guy that he could separate it and he was able to train there for quite a while but um but always sort of keep it at an arm's distance he was very successful in his own life he owned some sort of company or something like that uh ended up got married he seems very happy now and um you know guys like that were kind of rare but that was a moment in time where i had some like cognitive dissonance this moment i was like wait a minute this guy like he's my friend he's good at martial arts uh you know he has my best interest in mind but he's just flat out saying that there's a cult of concho um so that's not the best answer to your question chris but that's the best <laughs> no it's it actually is a great answer because um because it highlights the fact that sometimes you are Sometimes you can't tell on day one or day two or day yeah. 25 what you're involved in yet. You don't have enough data to know. You're new to the group. Everything is new. Everything is unfamiliar. The language is unfamiliar. The, the, the room is unfamiliar or the, or the location and, and the individuals. You have to learn who all these people are and they're going to, you know, and all of this. Any group, we all run into that. This is why we're all... You know, generally speaking, we're either quiet and kind of listening or we're overcompensating and are ridiculously obnoxious when we're first members of a group. When do you think then, what was the first sign? What was the first thing you can remember seeing that made you go, wait a second? Well, I mean, there was that conversation you just described, which was a great one. Was there an earlier point? Yeah, uh one of my really good friends at the time and still a friend today we don't talk as much as we used to um great guy uh me and him met uh after i got my first degree black belt and he was maybe not quite a black belt yet and he was um so we were trained together we became like bffs you know inseparable and i remember when i was coming up training there was a moment where i was sort of the golden boy because I had, I was, you know, I was young. I was, I was physical, athletic. I was training every day, twice a day, uh, except Sundays. And even then sometimes, you know, but I was there virtually every day. And I was like the unofficial Uchideshi, you know? And, and even after I got my black belt, you know, some people approach me and they're like, Hey, do you know about our Uchideshi program? Like, is that something you might be interested in? So, you know, I felt good. I felt like all eyes were kind of on me and it feels good to be sort of the up and comer. And then I was training with my friend and, um, and he got his black belt, uh, in December. And then we left for like the holidays. We came back in January and, um, and I remember me and him, we were like, dude, we're going to go all the way together. We're both black belts. Now we're going to get our second degree, you know, at the same time. And, and we had it all mapped out. I remember I got back in January and he's, you know, I came in late one Sunday night. And he was there, a bunch of people were there training, and I saw him, gave him a hug, and he said, oh, I just signed the contract, I'm going to be in Uchideshi. And uh, this was 2008, and I remember that when he said that, I mentally, I got very upset, because, and it took me a long time to process and deal with this, um, these emotions, but I realized that he's going to be the new golden boy. And I, he, he took the opportunity that I didn't take and, uh, 
And for the rest of the year, he skyrocketed. This kid was an incredible martial artist. He got, you know, three black belt ranks or something in one year, and I just got one. So by the end of the year, he was way ahead of me. And actually, you know, he started to associate more with the other Uchideshi. Um, and so, you know, I went through this whole internal struggle of dealing with, you know, feelings of resentment and being replaced and then realizing that I wasn't, you know, like I, I would never quite be in that inner circle. And um, that was the first red flag because I realized I was like, why are you so upset about this? Like you should be happy. And, and he doesn't affect you. You're on the same path. He's not slowing you down. But I, I it took me a while to realize that um, the reason I got so upset was I just realized that I was reliant on that group of people for like personal power to a, to a degree. Bingo. There it is. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. You know, we could talk about external factors to you, red flags you might have seen with um, the instructor or with some other students or in the environment, but you chose something inside yourself. And I think that's very, very important because that is something that requires only our own self-awareness. Hmm. And it is hard to be able to know when you're getting involved in a group that is potentially cultish or potentially, you know, not in your best interest. It's hard. It's designed to be hard. It's, it's literally built that way. I mean, all the mechanisms and all the trappings and all the things at the beginning are all the things that are, that are the best part of the experience. They're the things that are hooking you into it, you know? <laughs> and then you're like a fish, you know? And then you're there. And, and, and really, the first sign is you should feel that hook in your yeah. mouth, you know? That's the first thing you should feel. But yeah. we cognitive dissonance our way out of that. We rationalize our way through that. We want it to work. We want it to be the right decision. We don't want to have been duped or been wrong or have made a stupid decision or something. So we brush it off and we move on. And that is where the critical thinking comes in. And I'm just going to stress this because I'm not a one-hit wonder. I'm not a one-note <laughs> pony. But I will keep hitting on critical thinking because that is the tool that if you, if you use it consciously, you could detect that and avoid years of trouble as a result, you know. You, the generic audience out there, not not, not you. <laughs> okay, so anyway, just wanted to highlight that point, and I'm really glad you brought that up that way because it's uh, you you have done some real thinking about this. You you are definitely one of the more impressive people I have interviewed. In a cult. <laughs> coming out of a cult, yeah, because you have done exactly what I've I've suggested a lot of people do, which is you have taken the time to educate yourself about some of this stuff. Yeah, you know? and I feel like a lot of that was because I kept training in martial arts. Mm. So I always was kind of asking myself, like, are you just, are you, are you really, did you free yourself? Because you're still going to a mat, you know? And um, so thinking about that and, and, you know, in some ways I talked about the older people yep. that were there that, that, you know, how did they not know? I feel a lot of responsibility now that it's like, it's my job to be that person because, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu absolutely has obsessive young people in it um, that want to compete and, and they want to dedicate their lives. And I feel like I've talked a couple people out of doing that. Um, 
because that's sort of like my karma in life now is is you know i have that role to play to to maybe take someone aside and be like hey like think carefully about this like this won't give as much back to you as you think exactly (laughs) that's right well you know i was really surprised one day um and i'll repeat this because i think it's uh fitting here joe rogan again was talking about this and he said um his own decision about being an mma fighter was made fairly early on when he realized he was going to get his ass kicked a lot because he wasn't good enough he was good but he wasn't good enough and he said if you're not good enough you actually just shouldn't pursue it because yeah. all you're doing is setting yourself up for a life of a lot of misery and a lot of beatings. And if you're not good enough, you're not going to get there. If you are good enough, great, go for it. But that's actually a, f- a fairly small number of people. Oh, my God. Yeah. Have you ever seen the video where he's talking to Brendan Schwab? Brendan, Brendan Schaub? Yeah, Brendan Schaub. Mm, not uh, sure. Basically what? telling him he needs to quit MMA. Uh, that, that actually might have been the, the quote I'm talking about. That might have been it. Where he yeah, says, yeah. you know, get out. That's, you know, was a high point of, of his uh, sort of career. And and I don't know what was said off camera, but basically that was one of his good friends who had suffered some horrific loss, knockout losses at, at very high levels in the heavyweight division, which is the most dangerous yep. at the UFC. And he sat him down and um, he basically... You know, he wouldn't let him. And Brandon kind of tried to laugh it off, like, oh, you're so funny. You're such. And Rogan was like dead serious. And he's like, it's time to go. Like, I, I care about you. And these people are just going to keep murdering you. And you got tons of other stuff you could do. You're funny. You could do comedy. And, uh, and I've talked, you know, I, I remember one time talking to a guy in BJJ about that. He was going to quit his job um, and just train. And he actually was pretty good. Um, so it was a tougher thing because, you know, maybe he could, but, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is like MMA in that just no one is making money in that. Um, even UFC fighters are making very little money aside from that sort of golden handful of people. Uh, and then of course, you know, you're, it's just not, it's just not a path. I mean, not for, not for as many people as think it is their path. And that's kind of the point, you know? Um, you have to, the, the other half of that, of course, is that you have to absolutely positively be completely dedicated to it. Like you got to be a hundred percent all in. If you're yeah, not, that was the other piece of that advice. If you're not a hundred percent, if you're 99.5, yeah, forget it, quit, don't do it. Yeah. You, you have to have almost like this unhealthy obsession. You have to have a hatred of losing a fear of losing and being human. Like you, you, you kind of have to be like psychologically or pathological. You have to have some sort of major, you know, issue that, that is actually working in a productive way for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Basically, that's exactly right. Um, okay, man. This was very, very interesting. I'd like to move toward wrapping it up. And I'd like to ask you in that direction, how has life been since you left? First off. Life has been great, actually. Like, uh, Sarah's pregnant. We're having our first kid. Hey, congratulations. Yeah, um, I eventually left Monterey. And, um, you know, Cebucon was a big thing. I was like, you know, there's just too many memories here. And and even I went back to Monterey a couple weeks ago, and it was just it was very strange. Um, actually, I helped kind of broker the sale of the Cebucon dojo. 
Um, sort of, <laughs> really? Yeah, sort of behind the scenes. I met some guys that were doing Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in Santa Cruz. And um, and the guy, you know, he was like, oh, I want to open a place in Monterey. Do you know a place? And I was like, well. And at that time, Contro had moved and kind of shut down the dojo. And I said, well, you know, I know this guy. He's kind of eccentric. He's still owns this place i said you can contact him but just do not tell him that i referred you at all um you should not even mention me and, and it actually all worked out and now that place is still a martial arts school teaching a different martial art um but uh yeah life has been really good and and honestly um you know i'm grateful because a lot of people left sabucon and they just had nothing you know um and, you know, I've been kind of keeping up with people over the years and like definitely seven out of 10 of them are kind of not doing so hot. Um, but I'm still training. I'm really enjoying that. I still I'm in better shape now than I did, you know, when I did Sabucon. Like I've become a full time writer. This book has sort of changed my life and and opened up a lot of opportunities. I work uh in kind of the martial arts industry you know i i i'm a sports writer i write for uh like grappleninsider.com um i write for uh sanable.com they make apparel um and then i have like a normal day job where i'm a staff writer at a nonprofit up here in sacramento so um yeah i'm, I'm very happy uh with with where i am and um and i don't see any path if i would have stayed in sabucon that I would have been this happy long-term because I always, I always would have been in competition for Concho's affection and attention and leaving that codependent relationship um, allowed me to have a better relationship with everyone else in my life. My family, you know, there's a lot of tension there. I think that I didn't fully understand until I left, uh, you know, my wife and, and things like that. I'll bet. I'll bet. Did you have many people uh, saying, thank God you're finally out? We've been worried about you. Anything like that? Yeah. After In hindsight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've been worried about you. I'm like, really? Where? <laughs> <laughs> where well, where Where was the intervention? <laughs> I, I think I, I, yeah, I don't know how well I kept it a secret. Um, I definitely, with my parents, I think I freaked them out uh, early because I didn't, I didn't, I was so enthusiastic, you know. Um, so I never had a bad relationship with him throughout this, but, um, but it was good to kind of talk through some of that stuff with them. Um, yeah, I, I, it's funny after I wrote the book, so many people came out and were like, yes, I, I totally agree. You know, I had, you know, I had a couple like nasty grams on, on social media and stuff, but overwhelmingly people agreed. Yeah. I've totally been there, done that every video, tons of positive comments, a few negative ones. And those are the ones that always stick in my craw. Right. Yeah. It's still, you know, it's tough to see criticism, but, um, you know, that's, that's part of being, you know, if you want to do a podcast <laughs> or if you want to write a book or whatever, you just got to be okay with that. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. All right, man. Well, any other life lessons you'd like to share before we wrap up here? Uh, no, not. I mean, I think if you are training right now and you're in a martial arts school, um, first, I think it's important to say that that the vast majority of martial arts schools are just functional places uh, filled with good people that are just they're doing good things. And and people in general are better off training martial arts than not. Um, but I would also say that, uh, you know, bad schools can be filled with good people and they usually are. And that's what makes it tricky. 
Um, and also, you know, just, just if you can resist obsession and also if you can understand that like your own identity, um, should be formed organically by you. You shouldn't just like adopt someone else's identity and persona. Uh, then I think you'll be fine. But I think that when I was young, like I was, um, I wasn't patient enough to just let my life play out and become the person that I was going to be. Um, so I rushed to this manufactured identity and martial arts seemed to be something that was really cool to me. Um, so, you know, what I'd say is that if you're training martial arts and maybe you've thought about some of these issues, um, just maybe ask yourself, like, you know, do I, do I need this in order to maintain the image of myself as a person? If the answer is yes, then maybe that's something to take a look at. Um, because then I think you're vulnerable maybe to get taken advantage of a little bit critical thinking, like you said. Exactly. Beautiful, man. Well, Louis, thank you very much for taking the time. We've been uh, we've been at this for quite some time. We've covered a lot of territory here. And like I said, I've been very impressed by almost everything you have said here. It's been quite an interesting and wonderful experience. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad this was a longer kind of interview because, um, you know, when it's shorter, it, it gets tough for me to really kind of get in depth. And I feel like in other interviews I've done, I haven't um, given the story the service it deserves. So this was great. Awesome, man. Okay, well, folks, any questions, comments, or feedback out there that you have, please leave them in the comment section below here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com where I will see them. And uh, when we post this, I will let Louie know so maybe he can hop by and check out any comments that are coming in on this as well. If there are questions for him directly, you might put them in the comment section too. Uh, and thanks for coming around and watching. And by the way, folks, if you find this podcast entertaining, informative, and educational, consider joining me on Patreon because that is what keeps the lights on and the show going. Thanks for coming around. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.